What's up, podcast world? Chad Bellman back at you with another episode. This life ain't for everybody. I truly want to say thank you for all of the support we are getting for this podcast. The growth of it has been humbling. And I hope y'all are ready for the new season of The Foul Life to start on the Outdoor Channel. Season 11 begins in late June, early July 2019. We couldn't be happier with what we got accomplished last year, even though Mother Nature didn't really cooperate. You can't blame her for that. Some years you get them, some years you don't, but we worked hard and we stayed after it and we had a great time. We met a lot of good people, visited a lot of cool areas and made a lot of good memories and told a lot of, a lot of good stories. Please remember to go to NAWTC.com and get signed up for the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships brought to you by Bone Collector and Wicked Outfitters in Kansas. My boy Clint Walker is putting on a heck of a competition there. So get involved. $300 gets you entered and uh, qualify, a chance to qualify to win $50,000 cash money. And as soon as you uh, enter for that $300 price tag, you're going to get a, a package already valued at over $400 with a Tacticam, a Gator Coolers, Tumbler, Broadheads, accessories for your bows. So get in there win it 14 regions across america and canada the 2019 bone collector north american whitetail championships telling chat building and the foul life banded crew sent you and in studio today we have a gentleman that i've known for several years through my affiliation with working out and through pendola training and matt pendola aaron pendola we have a select group of individuals that meet twice a week um, it's not mandatory. You, you pay for it. And if you show up, you show up. If you don't, you don't. Um, I've gotten to the point in my life where I regret not showing up. I love showing up. It makes me, uh, feel better physically, mentally, my psyche, emotionally. So today we're going to get into a bunch of things with my guest, my friend, my good buddy, Mike Stoker, who has lived a life that I have coined the American dream. And you can always say what your version of the American dream is. And I look at his life and i've talked to several individuals that know you mike um matt pendola being one of them i just had a conversation about you with him this morning and i i i look at things differently when it comes to the american dream and w one of the things i don't look at is the acquiring of wealth and i know that you have lived a life that you've had the opportunity to make a living and i think that that's how you look at it um but you've also developed this this uh this, um, how do I say it? Kind of, a you look at your portfolio of what you do and what you've done and who you've done it with and where you've been. And I look at it and I say, man, I'm 44 and I want to be there. And that's what Matt told me. So kudos to that. But Mike Stoker, welcome. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for being there. Nice to be here talking to you. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I, when I, when I came up with, with the idea of this title, um, first of all, I, uh, this, this title, this life ain't for everybody. It's from a place in Nashville that I saw it on the wall. Um, and it, the way that they um, portray the image of this life ain't for everybody is coming up in Nashville in the honky tonks, paying your dues, you know, becoming a becoming the next Garth Brooks, per se, or something like that. When I coined it uh, for this for this, it's about, you know, there's so many different walks of life out there. And. I've always accredited my lifestyle or the hunting lifestyle or the camp lifestyle of the common denominator that brings all these different walks of life together. And you, you're not a hunter. Um, you're a conservationist in a way. I'd say you're an environmentalist in a way. I, I think you truly care about the land and mother nature and all of that that goes into our, 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 our ecosystem. But hunting brought us together because it's given me the ability to afford to go to a place like Matt Pandola and I get to go there and I meet people like you. So in one way or the other, like they say, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, I get to meet you through 
um, you know, what hunting's brought to me. Right. So um, it's, it's interesting too. I, I grew up in a state in Nevada where hunting is, is ubiquitous. It's a very common pursuit. My dad was a hunter and I went hunting a lot when I was a kid. And I'd go quail hunting with my dad. We'd go chucker hunting, uh, pheasant hunting. And, you know, it was part of my upbringing. I, I chose to not pursue that further after a certain period of time. It just wasn't, wasn't my interest zone. It wasn't, I thought there's other things that were um, more enticing to me at that point in time as I got older. But it's part of my heritage. And it's interesting that that's something you don't probably know about me as I did grow up with owning guns, having shotguns, going out in the fields behind my house and, and, and hunting. And so it is a little bit of my heritage. I don't think you can be born and raised in the state of Nevada and not have that a little bit in your blood, a little bit in your, in your history. Yeah, that's interesting is that, um, you know, usually I see the exact opposite, that you didn't grow up hunting, but you got into it later in life. Not many people that started with their dad have I heard stories that they got out of it, but you still do enjoy some of the 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 bounty I've, you've Absolutely. eaten wild game with me you love you love Absolutely. the wild meats that you can my get. mom was one of the best game cooks in town i mean we had you know we grew up on duck and pheasant and deer and and uh <clears throat> all that was something i really looked forward to when i was a kid so you're born in reno and i'm going to guess a year you tell me if you don't want to get into it but i'm going to say you were born around 1950 you got it right on 1950 my dad was born in 1952 um, my mom was born in 1954 when you look back at at the way things were in the 1950s and you look at the landscape and you look at the the culture of this area has it shaped the person you are or have you reached outside of this community or the Chucky Meadows area to to become the the well-rounded individual that you are or does Reno have the ability to shape a person all on its own or have you had to really have you really had to reach outside, outside. of this yeah i think Probably growing up, I thought I had to reach out more than I, you know, uh, more than a lot of people did because I did feel like there were some limitations to being born and raised in Reno, Nevada. Um, that being said, I think the area has grown and developed immensely in the last, you know, 50, 50 years, in my instance, 68 years since I was born here. So I think there's probably more and more of an opportunity to expand within the confines of Reno, Nevada. The, the university system is awesome. Community college system is awesome. Um, we uh, participate in the Philharmonic. We go to chamber orchestra. There's all sorts of things to see and do and participate in Reno, Nevada that may not have been available back when I was a you know fifty you know in the fifties and in the sixties. It was probably more of a limited environment at that point in time. So yeah, it's, I would say I probably did reach out. I lived in Europe for a period of time. Uh, lived in different parts of the United States uh, when I was doing my training. Uh, as a pediatric dentist. So I think that necessarily probably broadened to shape me to some extent. Do you, do you absolutely love where you're from? Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely, without a doubt. I spend, I think the most quality time in the world I ever spend is if I'm in or around the Sierras. I mean, I love hiking in the Sierras. I love skiing in the Sierras. I take my kayak, kayak out at six o'clock in the morning in the summer in Tahoe and paddle on the most pristine lake in, uh, in the planet that I've ever seen. Um, so no, I'm absolutely in love with this area. Now you said something right there that sparks, and I don't call them arguments, but I've had very, I probably had three or four pretty, not heated, but like I'm real passionate about my view on Lake Tahoe. And I tell people like, one of my arguments is, and I can't find any research on this that backs me up. So I understand what evidence is and scientific research and all that. But I would guess that 
in America, just America, including Alaska and Hawaii, that Lake Tahoe is the number one tourist visited lake in the world year round. And I go online and I'm looking, I'm like, Crater Lake, there's no freaking no, way. There's no way in the world. You know, first but, of all, you don't have access. You know, if you look at Tahoe where it sits, you know, geographically, you're not very far from the Bay Area, not very far from the, you know, Sacramento Valley. So there's a lot of people that have access to Tahoe and a lot of different, you know, a lot of different venues to participate in Tahoe. People ski at Tahoe, people, uh, you know, water ski at Tahoe, people um, enjoy the beach at Tahoe, you know, people enjoy the nightlife at Tahoe. So I think the access to Tahoe is, is probably what, you know, in some respects probably sets it off uh, from a lot of other places too. In the year round, right? I mean, yeah. it's from the summer to- And the access, you know, is good and bad. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I used to go to beaches at Tahoe. I used to sleep on the beach at Tahoe. When I was a teenager, we'd go up there and just throw, up, uh, throw a sleeping bag on the beach at Tahoe. And you can't do that anymore. So obviously the access is, you know, there's good parts to that. And there's, you know, maybe a downside to that as well. Tahoe gets, you know, beautiful places in the world get loved to death sometimes. And, you know, Tahoe has that. Um, there's that with Tahoe that I think we always have to be cautious of. Do you think that Tahoe is a busier lake in the summer or the winter months, if you had to guess? Yeah, hard to know. I would probably guess the summer. Um, I mean, not, there's probably more people who can enjoy the lake than maybe do ski and backcountry. It's hard to know, but it, it's, it's getting used a lot. There's places where I, I do go backcountry skiing around Tahoe now, and there used to be one or two cars pulled off the side of the road, and a couple of us would be out backcountry skiing. Now there's 10, 15, 20 cars parked in the same spot, you know, doing the same activity. Fortunately, once you get 500 yards off the road, you don't see anybody again, so you have the whole space to yourself because it does absorb a lot of people when you're in the backcountry. But, you know, it's, it's being used more and more so, being discovered more and more so, I think. And you, and you said, um, and it's, I know you travel, you have a, a, a pretty diverse selection of places that you've been in the world. Yeah. And you're gonna, you would tell me that Tahoe is the the, the most pristine lake you've seen or probably, been around. Probably, you know, yeah. And I'm talking France, Europe, yeah. everywhere you've been. I lived in I lived in Switzerland for two years, so we spent a lot of time around the lakes in Switzerland. And uh, yeah, they don't have the clarity of Tahoe. They don't have the the beaches of Tahoe. They, yeah, maybe it's familiarity too. Maybe I'm more familiar with Tahoe. It's hard to maybe make a real direct comparison, but uh, I can't see any comparison to Tahoe. They might have some beautiful villas and old cities around their lakes that we don't maybe have. But just from a physical standpoint, I can't imagine ever seeing why well, I haven't seen anything that even compares to Tahoe in any, any way, shape, or form. At one time I had heard and I, that it was considered the eighth wonder of the world. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I think I've probably have heard that. I've heard that a couple times. Yeah. I just heard it just recently yeah. and I was, I've, never, I've never really looked into that and you know, yeah, as far as wonders of the world, but I, I talk to people about it and I'm like, I always tell people, man, you got to come see Tahoe. When you're here, we got to go see it. As soon as you come over the, over the, the right. mountain and you can see the water. But on the other end of the spectrum, I personally, and I travel a lot, but even when I'm here, I keep threatening, I'm going to Tahoe and I take it for granted mm -hmm. that it's there. Have you yeah. ever gotten to that position in your life to where? Probably not. I, you know, the other thing I do in Tahoe a lot, we always, we long time ago, I got a little sailboat and we sailed it in Tahoe before I knew anything about sailing. And I know very little about sailing even today, but I, what little I do know, um, 
far exceeds what I knew when I first took my family out sailing on Tahoe and probably risked everybody's life doing that. But so we still have a little boat we keep up on Tahoe and a little sailboat on the east shore of Tahoe and, or excuse me, on the west side of Tahoe. And, and um, yeah, we sail uh, as many times during the summer as we can. So a lot of different ways of enjoying that, that, that particular body of water. It's pretty special. Yeah, and I think I think that it's one of those things in my mind that it has gotten more difficult to. I mean, I went to Nevada Beach last year, and I mean, it was it was amazing. And then yeah. Sand Harbor was where we went when we grew up, and you can't really just right. go get a parking spot really easy. You're walking, you're parking on the road right. if you're not up there at seven a.m. That's why a boat's a nice way to access the lake. Yeah, and that's I'm waiting for yeah. that invite. So you do you put in on the North Shore or where are you, where are you put in uh, on the West Side? Oh, uh, at uh, Homewood. Just you're in Homewood. Yeah, right near Homewood. So, yeah, I just put in there. We got a little 28-footer. We go out sailing, and we'll do that. We'll do that this summer. Let's do it for sure. I would love it. So yeah. is Homewood like between Grand Lebacan and Emerald Bay? Is it on that, is yeah. that, on that corner yeah. of the lake? Right, Tahoma. Tahoma. It's just past Tahoe City. Just past Tahoe like City. 10 miles. Um, what would it be? South of Tahoe City. Yeah. And so you guys will get a bottle of wine and, 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 and the cheeses and go cheese out. And some crackers. <laughs> and God. So sometimes you're hanging on for dear life because it can blow at Tahoe. Oh, you, know, yeah. you can get 20, 25 knots of wind up at Tahoe. Most of the time you're in sailing, just really nice, pleasant conditions. 10, 15 knots, mild little heel that's enough to still balance your bottle of wine and, and, and enjoy yourself for the afternoon. Could you pick a number two in America, the continental United States, a number two favorite spot? that with your personality and the way that I could perceive you, mm -hmm. I would say that you're going to be a, a um, more of a Bay Area guy than a South Florida guy. You're going to be more of a San Francisco kind of guy than yeah. you're going to be a New York City guy. And it might be familiarity again, but right. do, you, do you like the Bay Area? Absolutely. Well, I went to dental school in San Francisco. I lived in the, in the city for three years. Um, so, you know, it was, it's familiarity for sure. And we kept a boat, actually, we kept a boat in Berkeley, California for about 15 years. So after I sailed at Tahoe for a period of time, we got a little bit bigger boat, moved it down to the Bay Area and parked it in, Ber in Berkeley. And uh, uh, growing up, I went to Berkeley an awful lot. My parents' best friends lived in Berkeley, so Berkeley's always kind of home away from home. So yeah, Bay Area is obviously my probably second most favorite place to be. And that's another thing, being loved to death, you know, it's kind of, the Bay Area seems crowded and busy and, and everything, but it's still, there's a, there's a lot of things to see and do in San Francisco. Not the least of which going to the ball game and, and everything else like that, but also enjoying some damn good food and, you know, good bakeries and good wine up in the Napa Valley. And so that's a good spot to be. I, I enjoy it. If, I, if you can get to the right spots, uh, you know, if we're just talking about the city, and you're in the right spots of, you know, the park and the wharf. And, you know, sometimes when you're downtown and you're trying to drive, there's there's yeah. right ways to do San Francisco and there's wrong ways to do it. Right. And getting, you know, driving an F-250 Ford diesel across the Bay Bridge and trying to get off at an exit and park at a the hotel is not the right way to do it. Right so I, I love it down there, though. You talk about the food. I mean, yeah. the culinary part of the Bay Area from the seafood to the Italian food. I mean, it's down, amazing, isn't it? Up and down the line and keep on going to different places every time you go down there we you know we end up gravitating towards our favorites but oh my god you can discover a new restaurant every time you go to that to that city and and newport of town i mean that's the other thing about san francisco like any neat city they're they're dynamic they're constantly changing you know i lived in san francisco gosh back in the 70s and then you come back fast forward 40 years 40 years later and the neighborhoods that weren't as attractive 40 years ago are now totally changed. Um, still very diverse, uh, progressive city, 
but you know, always, always changing. It's a very dynamic community. And you, you mentioned that your affiliation with San Francisco is dental school. So you, you come, you're born in Reno, Nevada in 1950. I'm going to say you graduated high school in 1970. 68. 68. Oh, yeah. my dad was 70. So right. 60, yeah, that was dumb. Right. So 18. So <laughs> 68 middle, where did you go to high school? Reno high. Okay. My dad was Wooster. Right. Moved, we, moved right on to university of Nevada. And when did you make it up in your mind though, that you were going to go become a dentist? Was that early in life or was that a college decision or what? Yeah, kind of probably even, you know, early college, uh, had a good family friend who was a dentist and I was always, uh, leaning towards biology and sciences and math and, and, uh, kind of as much as anything, wanted to be my own boss and pursue a career that I kind of could dictate uh, as much of my own life and my working life as possible. So uh, being being in private practice, having my own practice seemed like a, like a way I could do a lot of things I wanted to do and make my profession a big part of my life, but not all of my life. And when you started getting into the dental the dental part of it, was there anything that like right when you get into dental school and, and you're in the specialized part of the education and the curriculum, right. I look at that, that like a dentist has to be like dead on and precise. Did anything like intimidate you or scare you when you started getting <laughs> all that? Yeah. I first, my first day of dental school, I thought, Oh my God, I'm in arts and crafts class. And I was never very good at arts and crafts. Um, so no, dental school is very, an extremely intimidating situation because Everything I'd done up to that point was academic. It was, you know, I could go home and study and 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 um, come forth the next day of the day of the exam and, and know that I was going to perform well. And dentistry is extremely physical. It's a very physically, you know, like you said, it's it's a meticulous, exacting uh, pursuit, and uh, it was really out of my comfort zone to the point where I really wasn't sure if I was going to get through uh, dental school. I thought, oh my god, this is just not what I expected at all. Came to like it, then started to really, really like it. Because um, I found out I wasn't as bad at the things that I just never tried very much before. But, you know, doing um, you know, the meticulous part of what be, it takes to become a dentist and, the, and uh, some of the buildup towards, you know, before you finally do start doing dentistry, uh, on, especially on live patients. Uh, all that process, I, I found out that I was okay at it. I, but it was scared hell to begin with, for sure. What is what is the the thing that that attracted you to it? And now where I'm going with that is like now for the rest of your career. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that this defines you as a person, but mm -hmm. as far as your professionalism goes and your in your livelihood, right. you have to look in people's strangers' mouths, new patients, referred patients, right. call, uh, you know, patients that have been there that you're familiar with. But you're looking in somebody's mouth, and what, what was the draw? Hard to know what really was the draw. I thought I think it just from being able to do something for people and do um, you know perform a service that this unique and be good at what that you know, performing that service. Um, I think that gives you kind of the license to feel like you, um, you know, the confidence and the license to go ahead and, and you know enter that you know that space. So I think I think once you, you slowly build confidence over a period of time, know that you have a service to offer and know that you're good at what you do, uh, those things start giving you the comfort level to say, okay, I, I'm, I, I can do this. So I think it's it's a progression and it's a, a slow process. Um, I, went in pedi I went into pediatrics 
after a process of going, I did a, a year of general residency uh, back in Boston where I did a lot of surgery. And uh, I thought, well, I enjoyed it again. I thought it was a, an interesting process, but it wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And I started doing kids at, uh, at uh, Boston University. I started doing uh, work in their pediatric, pediatric clinic. And I thought this would be a nice, nice place to finally settle into. So the process is progressive. It wasn't like I chose it at an early age. I didn't see myself as a 10-year-old being a dentist. Maybe by the time I was a 20-year-old, I was giving it some thought. By the time I was 23 or 24, I knew that that's what I really wanted to do. It just seemed like a lifestyle, uh, professional um, challenge. All those things seemed to be there for me. And as far as um, the responsibility of being able to go into, you know, into an, a, a, a person's mouth, like <laughs> I'm looking at it like, are you are you doing surgeries or are you what what is the difference? There's there's different levels of dentistry, right? Right. And then you got you have somebody you have a dentist that that can go in and put a a, a what, you know fix a cavity or put a crown on. Right. And then there's a dentist that would do a root canal. Is that two separate dentists or were you did you fit both of those molds? Yeah, you know, you, there's general dentistry kind of is a little broad scope of everything. You can do a little bit of everything, and you're trained to do a little bit of everything. You get into specialized cases. Uh, specialized circumstances, then you start, you know, seeking out specialists. So in your example, you mentioned doing uh, root canal endodontics, uh, oral surgery, another one. Usually a general dentist is going to do some cases, but they're probably going to refer out the ones that are particularly challenging. A pediatric dentist is more of a more of a general dentist for an age group. So we do a little bit of everything, but within an age group. So the dynamics of uh, growth and development, the dynamics of psychology, the, growth, the dynamics of a parent-child relationship, those are all the things that are unique to being a pediatric dentist here. You're a, you're a general dentist for a population. The population goes from birth, you know, essentially to maybe 18, 19 years of age when, he, when the child's finally grown, grown and wants to go somewhere else besides to his kid's dentist. But uh, so it, one of the appeals of being in pediatrics is that you can do a lot of different types of procedure. I, I would do surgery. I would do um, restorative work, uh, the basic fillings and crowns. Uh, you do, uh, you know, endodontic care. You, you're able and, and do some orthodontic care, too. Although that's not your specialty, you still do some orthodontic care as well. So it gives you a broad range of things to do. But again, you're targeting that population. Pediatric, pediatric population. Um, do you have a, was there extra responsibility or pressure on you with the age group of, so. of, of operating on a four-year-old's mouth? I or think so. I think, I think the dynamics, the parent-child dynamic, for sure. There's another, you know, even, you know, you're treating one patient, there's kind of another patient in the room, right? And that's the parent. So, so you're obviously, you know, you're keenly aware of that dynamic. And I think that adds, you know, it adds to the challenge. It also adds to some of the, some of the um, uh, feelings of, of success or feelings of accomplishment. A lot of parents would come to me and they say, I'm, I want my child to see a specialist because I don't want my child to have the same um, um, experiences that I had as a child at the dentist. And so to see them feeling comfortable with you and the way you're taking care of your, their kids, uh, it's a really a great sense of accomplishment and, and, and a really good feeling. Conversely, when things don't go as well as you want them to and you're, you're feeling, you know, my gosh, you feel like you're in a pressure cooker. So um, I think part of, the, part of the job is giving people realistic expectations and, and knowing that, you know, these are, you know, for sometimes unique challenges and you're going to do the best job you can do. 
and and you you proceed and you proceed knowing you knowing that you this is your field right and you're you're supposed to be pretty pretty good at that right so you you proceed with that confidence that you know that you can you can do it as well as anybody can do it do you is it a hard conversation to have with a parent when you need to go to me and say, Chad, your, your, your kid needs braces bad. Their teeth are mm -hmm. to the point now to where I can't save them. Is that a, is that, was that a normal conversation for you to have or you would, you know, you lead, you know, you wouldn't drop something like that on anybody. If there's severe problems, you know, kids have problems. You try to anticipate them early on. You try to minimize those problems. And uh, that's part of your, part of your job is to, you know, kind of lead the way so that you mitigate issues as the kid gets bigger. And, uh, and so a particular problem, the, kid, the, the child might be heading towards you trying to, to, uh, you know, steer them in the, in the best direction possible from the earliest age as possible. That's what your, that's what your job is. That's what your specialty is. That's also kind of why I chose pediatrics is because you have the ability to affect so many things. I mean, the child is growing, developing, um, everything's in front of you. Uh, as opposed to when you're uh, a, a quote adult dentist, and and you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the road has already been traveled, right? So now you're in the now in the in the position of trying to salvage what's what's already taken place. With kids, um, everything's developing in front of you. It's like a, a plant that's growing in your backyard. You can shape it. You can mold it. You can kind of um, develop uh, what's there in a way that uh, you can get the best possible outcome. So you, you're a dentist now. You're making money. Is this the first time in your life that you've been, seen this kind of money? Were you were you so a hippie? Funny. Were you a hippie? Stoker? I was kind of a hippie. You yeah. were kind of a, were kind you a gypsy? Were you a gypsy a little bit? Yeah, you know, I was kind of a long haired sort of guy. Um, <clears throat> went to Boston. Went, went to dental school in San Francisco. So obviously, San Francisco in the '70s was its own environment, right? So, so sure, you're caught up in that kind of wave to some extent. <clears throat> Spent some time in Haight Ashbury area and enjoying that part of the, the culture of San Francisco, moved from there to Boston, which by comparison was a much more conservative town. But by the time I hit Boston, I had a, a kind of a big Afro and uh, starting to grow a little stubble of a beard, thinking that I was kind of, kind of a, you know, a, a, a alternative lifestyle sort of person. So I get to, to Boston and a very conservative town with the part of Boston that I was in at that time and uh, uh, worked at the public health service. And it was just a phenomenal environment in the sense that we got to see a little bit of everything. And we were doing surgery, we're doing kids, we're working on kids that we're working on patients in uh, the OR, the operating room. Um, we did rotations for general surgery. Uh, so so we're get, you got to be exposed to so many different things. And it was just, it was like, you know, I just thought the most amazing you know, position in the world to be in. Plus, I got paid for it. I couldn't believe it. at the end of the month, we got a check for, <clears throat> I think, a thousand bucks, Chad. And my wife and I just laid on our floor of our apartment and laughed. I wonder how in the world are we going to spend a thousand dollars? And, you know, <laughs> rent was probably 150. And, you know, whatever food you're going to eat is not going to be very much more. So it seems like this first time in my life I had actually, quote, disposable income. We could actually go to a restaurant. We could actually take a trip up the, you know, main coast and, 
and go eat lobster. I mean, it's like, I just couldn't believe, I, I don't think I ever felt as wealthy in my entire life. So this is, this is leaving San Francisco yeah. with a degree in dentistry right. and this is your first job placement. How yeah. do you get to Boston? There was, was this a, was this a, a, a deal where you saw right. a, an ad or an opportunity? Oh, yeah. or did well, you just want to live in Boston for well, a minute? Well, there's, there's this thing as, um, you know, where you do residencies in medicine or in dentistry, you do residencies when you finish your uh, undergraduate degree. <clears throat> so you're a dentist and so you, either can specialize or you can choose a general residency. And so this was a general residency. So it was my first real job as a dentist. First time I ever got paid to do dentistry. So like that's when I thought that perhaps I was probably the richest man on the planet at that point in time. <laughs> so you, you talk about, you know, what that thousand dollars meant to you and you were almost, you know, you're just like laughing, like you can't right. believe that you're making this kind of money now. And, the, and the, somebody's paying me to do something I really want to do. Really love. Love. I really love. It's really a great just, feeling. Really just having a fun time. So you probably just nailed it on the head what the secret of life is and how I name your, your life, the American dream. You just nailed it that pretty much find something that you love to do and you right. don't work a day in your life kind of theory, right? right? Exactly. Even though you're working your ass off. You work your butt off, but yeah, exactly. You're doing you're doing something that you really enjoy doing. I mean, when when I was there, I was in, totally enjoying that. Or saw an extremely diverse clientele. Uh, from there, I went and did a pediatric residency in Cincinnati at Children's Hospital. It was the same thing. All of a sudden, I'm working on the cutest little kids in the world, and and uh, just and working with some other residents. We're all in the same situation. We're all you know at the same part of our career. So there's a lot of camaraderie, and so you're you're just doing things that you're just having a, a lot of fun doing it. But you're you know you're getting paid as a resident, and you're not making an awful lot of money. But in those days, it seemed like an awful lot of money. So, what is the next step in the trans? I know that you continue and you get out of your residency. Um, are you starting to think at that time when you're during that residency of the financial? Um, yeah. opportunity and potential that you are you starting to see it at that point where I'm going is like I know that you are a smart money guy a smart money manager you've made good moves in your life are you seeing it now in Boston is when you start seeing that first thousand dollars coming in or are you like I got to spend this as fast as I can and live life or do you is yeah, was it already really. a mindset no really I think I I think I always have thought as whatever financial well-being you had, it was kind of a conduit to doing, you know, living life and having experiences. I never thought of accumulating. And I never really had an, any set idea of what kind of income potential I had. I mean, you, you saw other dentists, you knew that dentists and doctors did fine, but that I don't think that was ever part of the appeal. I just always assumed that I would be okay and I'd be fine. I think when I started, when I got back, so I went back to Reno, Nevada, and started my practice. And you're, you know, you're working and you're, you just got your head in the, you know, in the, in the whole thing and you're just working and, and you look at the end of the day and you say, okay, we're, you know, we're doing pretty well. We're making, we're making payroll or making, you know, paying the overhead or doing things. And then you find out that, you know, after a period of time, you're doing pretty well. So I, I think I started at a pretty early age realizing that, you know, you, um, you, you work, <clears throat> you work for your own satisfaction and you work to do the best job you possibly can do. And the economic reward kind of was secondary to that. It came, and I don't think I ever put strong, you know, strict goals of what I wanted to do economically. I just thought that if I did a good job with what I was doing, and and I had a couple rules that I put myself under that I have shared with Pendle, and I'll share them with you about how I think you can um, can become, you know, somewhat uh, financially secure. But I think. That was never my goal. My, I just thought that if my goal was to enjoy what I was doing and my goal was to be good at what I was doing. 
And I figured that after that, then everything else would take care of itself. And most of the time it does, but there's a couple of things that I did. And, and there's one thing I told Pendle a long time ago too, Matt. I said, the most important person in your, in your business is you, right? So who do you pay first? You pay yourself first. So I always had this rule where at the end of the, the beginning of the month, not the end of the month, beginning of the month, I'd always pay myself first and I'd give myself, and this went into savings, uh, and it was whatever percentage I thought was reasonable at the time. So let's say if I was making thousand bucks a month, I'd put a hundred dollars away. And I'd just put it in, in a well diversified portfolio that, you know, early on I managed my own, later on I had other people. But I always tried to pay myself first. Then I knew that whatever I had the rest of the month, I could gladly and willingly um, take, you know, take care of my own, my other needs. So obviously you have your basic needs, you take care of your basic needs. But after that, after you've already put yourself in a position where you've paid yourself first and you've put some money in the, in the savings, then if you have 50 bucks at the end of the month, you can go out and do whatever you want to do with that 50 bucks. And you do it willingly and you do it knowing that you've already, you know, you've satisfied your, your own, your own requirement for, for that month. And I think it gives you a lot of freedom. You know, it, it, if you wait until the end of the month to pay yourself, then, then it, it always turns out that there's not there what you think it's going to be there. So I, I told Matt, if you pay yourself first, you're never going to miss it. And he, he said, well, how much should I pay myself? And, and we kind of figured out his budget a little bit. And I said, let's start with this and see if you miss it. And he'd come back a couple of months later and says, I don't miss it at all. I said, well, let's try this and see if you miss that. And so we got up to certain... When you say miss it, sorry to interrupt, but when you say if you don't miss it, are you talking about you're going to still pay your employees, you're still going to yeah, pay absolutely. your insurance, your lease, your heat, all that, your yeah. utilities. Right. And if you, at the end of the month, when you, and you're like, man, we've still got money in the bank. I don't even realize that this money's gone that I took out at the beginning of the you month. You never, you never, exactly. You don't, you just don't. You don't miss it. And so if it's not there, you don't see it. It's not in your accounts anymore. It's not, you know, it's in this separate account that you've kind of put over to the side that you don't look at all the time. And you, you just take that money out and, and you, um, and for then after that, everything else you have at that point in time for the rest of the month, it's yours. I and mean, obviously, like you say, you take care of your, take care of your obligations, but you know, it's a, it's a reasonable amount. So you know what your obligations are going to be. And I always found that, you know, it was, it was easy to, to save money and put money away doing that. And again, I never had, I never had long-term goals. Like I want to retire with this, but I put myself under some short-term goals. And I'd say that in the next two years, that this is what I want this account to look like, or this is what I want this savings account to look like. Four years this is what I want the savings account to look like. So that as I went along progressively, I always had um, short-term goals and short-term goals were obtainable. They were, you know, there are goals that you, you don't you don't get stuck in this long road. You're thinking, oh, my God, I'm never going to make it. You have short term goals that you make, you know, relatively um, uh, challenging, but on the other hand, doable. And so those are the those are the goals that I thought made it easier to get to a stepwise progression of where you end up wanting to be at the end. Do you remember the name of the book that you had Matt read? Yeah, a couple. Um, wealthiest man, wealthiest man in Babylon. It was one of them and the, the wealthy or barber, the barber, the wealthy barber. Yeah. And right. you cross barber out and put trainer. Right, exactly. So the, exactly. I, when Matt told me the story, I didn't even he, need to, you know, find the book, ingest the book, read whatever. I just, when I, when I read the wealthy barber, it told me that this barber was making these moves. A right. barber is a barber. Right. A barber is not a livelihood that you 
think of as like, oh, he's making millions, he's tearing it down. But the wealthy barber, I'm thinking that the, the theme of that book is and the message in that book is probably it does. You can be cutting 10 guys hair a day for 12 bucks a piece. And if you make the right moves, you can right. accumulate wealth right. through positioning yourself with these accounts and these, you and these investments. That, you take that first 12 bucks and you put it on the side and you never look at it again. And then you live off of the other nine haircuts. And make sure you day. don't miss that 12 bucks. Exactly. And then maybe add a little bit more. Add a little bit more as you go along. So my, my nephew is a barber, right? So he starts his, his business and then, of course, which book am I going to give him? I give him The Wealthy Barber. And to this day, he's doing damn well. I mean, he, he's putting money aside. He owns his own building that he, that he cuts hair in. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's on his way to being totally financially secure when he's, you know, 60 years old or 60. Which is old. young. Which is young. I mean, young. yeah, exactly. You can, you know, I, I think... Um, the other, I guess the biggest point is not to be so wrapped up in the end result, be, be committed to the process, you know, enjoy the process and be committed to the process. And the process is kind of fun. It's kind of nice to know that you're, you're, you're building some sort of financial security and you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to be a quote wealthy man, but you're going to be a person who can, you know, who can, um, enjoy life on his own terms when the time, when the time comes when you don't want to work anymore. When you say enjoy the process, I took a note of you're you're working for yourself there's a lot of responsibility and commitment that comes with that did you at one time be and i want to go back to the beginning of this after this question but did you ever become enslaved to your craft to where you didn't enjoy the smaller things in life you didn't travel as much as you wanted to it put pressure on you and your wife we haven't even got into you and your <laughs> wife yet but i have that written down but did, did you ever become enslaved to the craft or the lifestyle to where you're like, I got to be here 15 hours a day and I can't turn it off at night. And I'm wondering what I can do to grow my clientele. Or was it always just trust the process and, and you had that relaxed state of mind? Yeah. I'd like to say that I was always trust the process. I was a relaxed state of mind, but no, you, you get, there's always periods of time. And when you're, you know, you're, you feel especially pressured or challenged and, and you have obligations and, you know, and no one, I don't think anybody is ever immune to that. I think, you know, um, as you're going through the process and you're putting, you know, you're building a little bit of a, of a cushion, it gives you some, it gives you some confidence and it gives you the ability to think that, you know, um, I can suffer some ups and downs and still be okay. I'm not totally vulnerable. And I think that's a good best part about starting to be, starting to work on your, on your financial security from the very get go is just so that you have, <clears throat> so there's something there to back up, um, the ups and downs, cause everybody's going to go through ups and downs. And I think, you know, you said, do you ever feel like you're trapped or you're like in a, in a, in a vice and you can't, you know, you can't escape the process. And that happens a little bit when all of a sudden you find yourself with 15 employees and they're dependent upon you and, um, and you have a, you know, a building and you have a practice and you have, X number of patients and sure you, you wear that responsibility for sure. And I think you carry that responsibility. I think just having, first of all, some outlets, having a good support system, having some financial security, all those things help you weather those storms. But I think everybody gets into that at some point in time. I don't think you can, you can avoid that. But you put yourself in that position to take on those responsibilities. You're in Boston, which is called a, which is called your residency right, for right. general dentistry. Right. You leave Boston and come straight back to Reno, Nevada. No, I left Boston and then went to Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and I did a two-year residency. So I graduated dental school. I was only 24 when I finished dental school. I got out of UNR and, and quickly 
and I uh, got to dental school early. So I finished my program in dentistry when I was 24. So it was much too, I thought, I was much too young to go into practice. So I wanted to specialize anyhow. So I did a general residency, then I did the pediatric residency in Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which was phenomenal residency and really an interesting place to, to uh, study pediatrics. And um, then my mentor at Cincinnati had worked in, in Switzerland for a couple of years. And he knew of a, of a clinic there uh, that was looking for dentists from outside the, uh, outside of the country of Switzerland. They wanted U.S. dentists. They wanted some German dentists. They wanted some Scandinavian dentists. It was kind of a, kind of a, a blend of a lot of different um, countries that um, worked in these clinics in, in Switzerland. And so we worked, I worked in a, in a clinic in Basel, Switzerland, where we just did school kids. And um, I worked, my mentor was, a, was German. I worked with Yugoslavians, former Yugoslavians, um, now uh, Serbian and, and Croatian. Um, we worked with a French dentist. I worked with several Swiss dentists. And we were there for two years. And that's where my, my first daughter, my first child was born in Switzerland. So we spent two years there. And um, my wife had studied in, in France before, so she spoke excellent French. I spoke very rudimentary German and found out how rudimentary it was when I finally got there and tried to converse with people in Switzerland who have their own very unique dialect. But um, yeah, so we spent two years in, in, in Switzerland. And at this time, are you plotting your plan? Are you? Yeah, I'm thinking are, I'm gonna go back to the United States and eventually start a private practice. Um, and I'm thinking more than likely, I mean, I was born and raised in Reno, Nevada. My wife was born and raised in Reno, Nevada. So we're pretty much sure we're probably gonna come back to this area. We weren't certainly committed to it, but we were obviously as high on our list of where we're going to, where we're going to think about starting a practice for sure. But to start a practice is to start a business. It's to start a brand. It's, it, it's, it's now you're being wired with what they call the entrepreneurial spirit. You're not right. just a specialized dentist with right. a dentist background, a dentist education, a degree in dentist. You've went to Boston on your general residency. You went to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. You go to Switzerland, but this whole time you're not thinking, Hey, I want to move back to Nevada where I was born and raised and work for another dentist. You're automatically saying, I'm going to go lease a building or buy a building and start in, in my own patient. In, yeah. in my own in my own dentistry yeah and for various reasons that was more possible then maybe than it is even now but i really didn't <clears throat> didn't think i was going to go work for somebody else i really thought that i was either going to acquire an existing practice or just start a practice on my own and um when i got back to reno um we gosh we looked all around we looked in you know in california we looked in southern california we uh, looked around northern nevada different areas i was obviously more inclined to be in reno even looked at tahoe uh, as a possibility. And then there's a practice that became for sale in Reno, Nevada, and it was a pediatric dental practice. And I thought this is a good opportunity. So I went ahead and invested in that practice and then started building it back up. So yeah, that was kind of where, where we began. But you're right, going from being just a clinician, not worrying about anything other than just, you know, doing your job, to all of a sudden becoming a boss and, and uh, an employer and a landlord and all those things. Uh, uh, yeah, that was a, was a big transition. Not everybody handled that very well, and I, I had my ups and downs for sure. So you, you don't have a background as a businessman at this not, time? Not at you're all. Wing, you're winging it. I'm winging it. You're, you're good at you're good at, one time, well, Up until the time I went to dental school, I was mowing lawns for, you know, 10 bucks a lawn, so... But now you're still you're still a, being a dentist is difficult. It's 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 not just going and and getting a dental degree and, and a background in dentistry is very specialized and it's very reputable. 
but it doesn't mean you're a businessman. Yeah, so what not. goes off in your brain yeah, or in your wiring not. system when you're in Switzerland? Are you and your wife thinking like, there's a lot of money in this. We can, yeah. we can build a clientele or yeah. why, why don't you just want to, well, I'm thinking of an attorney. You go to law school, you come out of attorney, you go work for a practice. Someday you might get awarded with becoming a partner right. with your work ethic. Right. But a lot of attorneys, most of them don't come out and go, I'm just going to start. No. They really don't have the reputation to no. go build something right they, away. They don't. I think dentistry unique and, I, and to some extent, that's why maybe I, why I chose it. It's kind of a cottage industry. You know, you have your small little, shop and you and you do your thing and you try to attract a client base uh, based upon reputation and people you know in town and things of that sort so that that was all really possible then i don't think it's necessarily as easy now as it was when i was first coming back to town you know i was born and raised in this area i knew people my wife's family is from here we both knew people in town so we kind of had it a little bit easier because of that and I, then i bought an existing practice where which had a client base already attached to it but oh my God, trying to figure out payroll and all those things. I mean, yeah, we we you learn by the seat of your pants, you know. And, and you know, you know, I don't necessarily think I was ever really that great at being a boss. But I think one thing I did do is I tried to I tried to find the best people I possibly could. I was never afraid to pay them certainly what they deserved, and probably you know more than most people were paying people at the same time. And I always tried to treat my employees like they were part of the family and part of the process. And that, I think that really, I think as you give people any business advice now who are in that same position, and that's one thing I'd definitely say is try to find people who who you believe in and they believe in you and and you'll go to the mat with them. I mean, you'll, I got to know these people's kids. I used to go to their family. We used to go to their functions. We used to, you know, be totally integrated into their lives because they're the most important people in your practice for the people you had working with. Besides, they're the people you're spending eight hours your day every single day with too. So you want to make sure you had people you enjoyed being with and and they believed in you and you believed in them. And that, I think, was the strongest thing I ever did. I think it was always having really good people around me. Um, my wife worked in the practice for the first 20 years. People always said, gosh, don't have your, don't have your family in the office. I had my my wife is my receptionist. I had my sisters, my chairside assistant. I had my dental, or my uh, sister-in-law as, uh, as, as an office worker. I was surrounded by family, certainly the first 20 years as a practice. And I don't think anybody cared more about my practice than they did. So uh, it, it worked for me. That's, that's, you know, you don't, you hear some success stories on bringing family in, but you hear a lot of disasters. disasters. Yeah. And one of them, one question comes to mind is like, if you are hanging out with these, you know, your partners or your, your, the dentists that are working under you, you're going to their functions or, you know, their kids, does it make it hard to have a conversation when you're not happy with their performance or is their performance so strong because their belief in you and their, it, it, yeah. it was just a natural fit. There was never come to that. Fortunately, I never came to that. I mean, I know as always, these were the people who would totally committed to the office, totally committed to what they're doing. And, you know, I think, you know, it's a reflection of them. Hopefully it's a little bit of a reflection of me. We, you know, we had a, a lot of mutual respect for one another. So that it never came to that. I mean, if there's ever issues, they were issues that were, were dealt with totally in a professional way and never got down to the point where they ever challenged the relationships. I, you know, my, my sister who used to work with me um, is still one of my best friends. And uh, I, think, I think that, that, that speaks a lot to the fact that we worked together chairside for almost, you know, previous 25, almost 30 years. I mean, any arguments? 
Yeah, sure. Bickering. You know. Any uh, envy, any jealousy, anything ever come about to where she sees you making this? Probably all those things, yeah. But, you know, you deal with them. And, uh, you know, you deal with them fairly. You're still close to her? Very close to her. That's awesome. Yeah. Probably, in some ways, maybe even closer now than I was then. Because at the end of the day, after you've been eight hours with somebody, I said, okay, let's, you know, let's go our own way. Now we go out to dinner all the time. We do stuff together all the time. Now we're, we're extremely close. Do you... I talked to George Brett, baseball player, right? He was a stud. I'm not name dropping. I'm just saying, I'm just making a a correlation here. He played baseball when you still had to see the ball, hit the ball, run, do all the things. He played his ass off. First ballot Hall of Famer, three hitting titles in three different decades. But the money that he made wasn't even on the radar of what these guys are making today. Even though the talent level is still there, it's business, it's evolution. Do you ever look at your dental career and go, man, I wish I could be a dentist now with the technology. And you go into a dentist office now and it's like, you don't even need to use your hands. It's like this, I'm like, what is going on? And they're like, just just sit still. (laughs) And the next thing I know, they're like, okay, you're done. I'm like, what? Yeah, what I happened? used to have to wear this rubber mask yeah. and have all, you know, right, do you ever right. think that? I really not. I, I think I, in some ways, I think I was here in a golden era, you know, um, people, you know, Reno was a smaller town, but it was growing rapidly, right? From 1980 to 2010, this, this place grew exponentially. And so I think I was, I was in, involved in that, in that growth and, and reaping the benefit of that growth in a lot of ways. Um, I, and I think, you know, as a, as a, small town guy, hometown guy, I think, uh, all that helped to create a, you know, a busy practice. I never, I never once worried about not being as busy as I wanted to be. And that's a luxury. I think dentists probably now are more concerned about trying to be as busy as they possibly can. And and some of the things you talk about technology has made it easier and quicker and faster. And, um, I think maybe, maybe I, I think in some respects I, I grew up in a, it's the golden era uh, of being a dentist in this community. We knew each other, all the dentists knew each other, um, call a guy on the phone and say, Hey, what do you think about this? Blah, blah, blah. It was big, big enough where we, um, you know, we had a pool of people that was pretty diverse and pretty large, but on the other hand, it was small enough where you felt like you're pretty close to your colleagues. And, and, uh, I'm not sure if, if. I look at through my daughter's eyes who took over my practice and I don't know that she has the same camaraderie amongst her colleagues necessarily that I did just because, um, you know, she's a mom, number one, she goes home at the end of the day and she has two kids to take care of and, and a household to provide for, to take care of. And, and, you know, I, being a guy and maybe dentistry in those days was more of a guy's world. And, you know, we'd go play softball together and go to beer afterwards and, I think the dental community was much closer at that time. So in some respects, I think I, I, I don't, I don't regret when I practiced at all. I think I'm actually happy I practiced then as opposed to practicing now. Did you ever see anything when you're, you know, during your practice and your tenure as a dentist, did you ever see anything that you, did you ever have that mind of like, man, I could make this pick better. Or I could make this piece of machinery better. Yeah, Did you ever get into the, in, into that part? Because I know a dentist named Joe Lairs. I don't know if that name means anything to you in California. He owns a company called JJ's, yeah. JJ Lairs Duck Calls. And his his background was dentistry and machining. And he's got like 11, 10 or 11 or 12 patents yeah. on the little saw blades and on the little, on, so funny. on all that stuff. So That's the opposite of me. I'm not a widget and gidget guy. I'm really not. I, I kind of wish I was, but I'm not a widget and gidget guy. I'd, I'd have to, you know, that was, I'd be out of place ever thinking that I was going to design something that was more effective than what I was using. You find pieces of equipment that you like more than others, but I wasn't going to be the guy who was going to design them. I have a friend in 
dental school who that's he became world renowned as the you know, designer of types of different types of dental equipment and uh i thought oh my god that's just it's just a mind that i don't have that's not that's not me at all I, i'd say that all the time it's above my pay grade i'm like man why can't i come up with something like that <laughs> like like this thing right here these robotic sweepers right. that go around your oh, house right, yeah. and i'm like every household i go into now has this thing yeah. and they're awesome yeah i'm like why can't i just sit down one time <laughs> and, and something like that and just exactly. come up with something like yeah, that but, yeah, no, so you mentioned me. that not you mentioned that you're young 24 years old when you're when you're done with your dental education right. and going into the real world it's not just that you're starting the real world as a professional dentist now but you're also you have this lady in your life that I've met and we, we, she's awesome. And one of the things that Matt and I talk about is the envy that people have for a relationship like that, because it's not that you guys have a relationship that has to be there. It's that it's naturally best friends and it's right. a really strong bond. Right. And you've been together for, tell me how, huh. how did you meet her? Uh, I met her uh, in high school. Uh, Debbie and I met, we knew we had mutual friends, but we didn't really know each other that well. By the end of high school, uh, we were starting to see each other more and more just from a community of friends. And um, I had a little wild side of me when I was in high school. I haven't told you about that part of my background, but I was a little bit of wild, a little hippie-ish, but also you know, a, little, a little alternative. Like and an uh, anarchist kind of guy? Or like you didn't care about the law? That, or what? No, <laughs> more of a guy who um, liked to party. Uh, Friday night would come and I'd kind of settle down by Sunday morning and start hitting the books again sort of thing, you know? So. I, I, I like to do, you know, we go out with my buddies and, you know, and, and we're probably more of the, you know, uh, little wilder types in high school. I wasn't much of an athlete in high school at all. I played a little baseball and uh, basically by the time I was a senior, I really wasn't playing any athletics whatsoever. So I wasn't very athletic. So I had to find my niche. And so my niche became kind of being more of the party guy, right? So <laughs> I drove around a little Volkswagen, a turquoise Volkswagen. We called it the turquoise turd. And uh, Turquoise Turd always had a keg of beer in the back seat. And, you know, that was kind of what I did. It was my high school career. I was just having a lot of fun. Reno, Nevada was a different place in 1968. I mean, you can get away with a lot that you couldn't get away with now. So I was that kind of high school guy. And Debbie was more of a more refined, you know, came from a really nice, you know, family. Dad was a prominent attorney in town. And, and the first time she saw me at a high school function, it was the National Honor Society. And I would been invited to be a member of the National Honor Society. And when she saw me there in the room, she thought that I was there to clean up or something. <laughs> she, she didn't really think oh. that I was part of this of this group that was actually it was a student on top of being this kind of this quote party guy. So we got together anyhow and started dating in high school. And then we both went to UNR. She took off for a year and studied in France. And then by the time she got back, I was in dental school. And so after my first year of dental school, we, we finally we got married. So we got married young. I mean, I was only. 21 just turning 22. so you stayed in touch with her when she moves to france oh, yeah yeah so, so you're come back you're, you're in the bay area she's in reno but you guys are a couple right you're dating by that time yeah we we're kind of established ourselves that we were a couple but how tell me like she thinks that you're a janitor because right. you, you you don't look like you're going to be because you, you got this of, reputation i don't know rough edge a rough yeah rough edge. edge so how did how, how does it happen to where yeah. is it she sees that you're an intellect now and she's like attracted to well, you well then i go to you know i go to the university and i i'm i'm, I'm a good student at the same time right i i let my partying you know come and go at the I, I, there was a beginning and an end to that, right? It didn't, it didn't continue all seven days of the week. So I'm still a good student. I'm doing well in school. And uh, I guess you could probably see that there's something, something maybe more of a potential there than she originally thought. And then, uh, then she gets to know my family and I get to know her family. We both um, 
find that we're we're fairly congruent in our in our backgrounds and fairly congruent in what we want in life and and um, but the other thing about interesting thing about um, getting so involved at an early age is that you're both still kind of defining yourself. You don't really know exactly when you're 21 or 22 who you are or who you're going to be. And I think sometimes that's when relationships either bond and become strengthened or it's when they kind of go apart. So when we're 22 and we get married, we're 22 and it's like, you know, first of all, I think why in the heck were we such in a hurry to get married? But for us, it worked, right? We we moved to San Francisco and so we we moved away from our family, we moved away from influences. We had to kind of rely on each other. And then from there, we moved Boston, we went to Cincinnati, then we ended up in Europe. And all the time, you know, we're away from our family or away from our closest friends. We're making new friends as we go, but we're kind of away from our roots. And I think in a lot of ways, it helped strengthen the relationship because we had to kind of rely on each other. And and um, and I, I think, like I said, sometimes that either strengthens a relationship or sometimes it can set a relationship apart. I think in our instance, obviously, it strengthened it because we became, you know, uh, very mutually dependent, but also independent. You know, we both had our own pursuits. You know, Debbie had went on and got a uh, master's degree in French literature and, like I said, studied in France. So she was very competent in her own right and never, you know, always knew that she could survive in this world without me. And I think that was important. Uh, but by the time we had children, we didn't have uh, Danielle until our second year that we were in Europe. We were almost 28, maybe almost 29. And we'd lived most of our 20s just with each other. And I think that was, for us, really important because we got to know each other, but we also got to define kind of what we wanted to do the rest of our life. We kind of got to make it up together. <clears throat> so we're, you know, we're both on the two-man planning committee. We're both equal members of the planning committee on what we're going to do. I think for the rest of our life. So I think that that really helped our relationship. And having been married at an early age, I don't think was a detriment to us. I think a lot of times people just aren't ready for that. You got married before Boston. Yeah. So yeah, you, we so you, if you think you would have we married in dental school, so, so I do was, you think you would have kept student. her? Would you have kept her with the afro when you moved to Boston, or would she have been like, "Dude, I'm out of here"? <laughs> she, no, she was. You already had her she was growing with me then. <laughs> she was good. Her hair was out to here too. She you know? had she the was, afro too. She was kind of growing with me at that point in time. Yeah, so I don't think that was a problem whatsoever. Because a lot of people like look at a relationship like you're 22 and you're already married. You're 24. You got a kid. You're in. You're doing all this stuff, and you. It's like, what about the rest of life? And you're still living life. You said that you guys are making the decisions as a team now. Yeah. You got away from influences. My question is always like, do you ever feel like you missed something? Like you look back on your life and you have this unbelievable yeah, story and family, but do you ever, is it ever like, man, I wonder if I just would have went to Switzerland on my own. Yeah, and yeah. Do, does it, does, does a guy of your stature ever think like that? Not at all. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, you know, that's hindsight, that's rear view mirror stuff. So it's kind of like, that doesn't, you can't change that. But on the other hand, I don't, I think all those experiences kind of led to us still being a strong relationship now. I mean, it's kind of funny, you know, I'm retired now. Fast but it's forward. very, it's very strong now. Right. Like you guys are a strong, strong, like in love, travel the world couple that are still doing tons of sh stuff together. Yeah. I think, and I think in some ways, you know, I mean, obviously relationships grow, right? They evolve. And so now, you know, now we've been married almost 50 years. Chad. I mean, we're talking about, what are we talking about now? We're talking 47 next month 47, 47 years next month so so yeah so you know but you know the relationship evolves um but in some way it's you to say it strengthens i don't think that's probably 
not enough doesn't really describe you know i think you know you merge <laughs> you merge into almost one entity in some respects i think you become but you still like look at organism. you still look at your wife of 47 years stoke and go man yeah. she still blows my mind yeah i mean she's pretty amazing <laughs> but but he's, but it's it's not like you just met this girl and you're like in this puppy love stage. No, no. 40, like said, 47 seven years, years of marriage and then you dated her for years before that. Yeah, right. right. This We're is 50 years. This is almost the this is almost like the average lifespan of a human being we're getting up to, right? <laughs> I think it's like 72 for right, a male. Right, yeah. And so you you're, you've you're been with close. you've been with a lady for over way over half your life. For yeah. two thirds of your life, you've been with the same person. Three fourths who did the math. Three quarters yeah, if you did the math. Yeah. yeah. So it's all like I said, you know, relationship evolved. I think one thing that really does stand out, and we comment about this all the time, is that people who struggle, I think, um, in relationships, and this can happen at any point in a relationship, not necessarily at five years or 10 years or 20 years, it can happen anytime in a relationship, is when, when there's a, de a dependency and one person doesn't end up holding up the, their end of the bargain, right? I mean, so, you, so you're dependent on a person for your... Uh, recreation, you're dependent upon them for your um, support, their love, whatever it is. And, and that dependence becomes, um, it, it, it weakens your, the relationship. And I think what we've been able to do is maintain independence to this extent that I get up in the morning and I go my way. She goes, gets up in the morning and goes her way, her way. Sometimes we get together and have lunch in the middle of the day, but usually we don't get together till the end of the day and we can kind of swap stories about what we did that day. I might go skiing, I might go backcountry skiing, I might go for a hike. Um, most of those things we aren't doing, I shouldn't say most, a lot of those things we aren't doing together, right? She doesn't ski, um, uh, you know, she doesn't play golf, fortunately, she doesn't play golf. And so when I go to do those things, I do it on my own. She goes and does her own thing. She meets with her friends. She, she you know, she uh, takes care of the, our, our grandchildren a lot. She does things like that. So we both have our own lives, and I think that's really important. So we don't have any sort of dependency on the other to fulfill gaps in our own life. We have, we can fill those gaps ourselves, but we still enjoy our company when we're together. So I think that's kind of a good thing about our relationships. I think we've always had our own little independence, and we've always had our part of our lives that that we were each responsible for, and um, and and we rely on each other obviously for an awful lot. But I think that we, we both know that we're both pretty strong in our own right. And I think that's the most important thing is that we each know that we can stand on our own two feet. And how important is communication? Meaning you grew up in an era where there was no instant messaging. There was right. no texting. I have this right. conversation with a lot of people like, right. I love this <clears throat> format of talking. This is my life. I'm, I'm a talker. I like mm -hmm. to like, mm -hmm. I'm really passionate about getting to know somebody and know the story. But through with a relationship you said independence obviously honesty trust is, right. those are the those are huge right. independence is an interesting one because a lot of people are like they're so attached they right. can't go out and be their individual and i've always said to people you chill out man like I guess I'm a little bit too voicious about, it, but I'm like, you're, you, you got to still have your individuality. You still have to be that guy yeah. that can go hang with the guys or go do this or what. And when you, when you get in a relationship to where it's always like this and like I call smothering, I think that that's like the beginning of the end to, in a Absolutely. lot of ways, because you can't be with the same, you can't be with them all the time. It is not the beginning of the end. It's certainly the, the end of, you know, being enjoying the relationship or, or thriving anticipation, everything that goes yeah, into I mean, it. I think I think of the, the books that Debbie reads, and I don't, I'm not part of that, but 
you know, at the end of the day, we can talk about, you know, what she's pursued in her, in her day or her life or what she's doing at this point in time. And so you get together and you compare notes, but it's not like you, you haven't written the story together. You get to, you get a chance to kind of share the story at the end of the day. And I think that's, that's really important. I mean, I, I love to sail and, you know, and, and Debbie, you know, okay, she's okay with it. It's not her passion, but she allows me to do that. I mean, it's just not like she would ever say, oh, I'd much rather have you spend time with me as opposed to go out with your buddies and go sailing for the afternoon. So I think giving each other a lot of slack, an awful lot of slack, um, allows you to kind of, you know, thrive in your own right. But then at the end of the day, you share it with them. And there's nobody else I'd rather share my experiences than with Deb. I, I come home after I've been out of the golf course, and I'll tell her every little shot that I made and how I miss this chip and whatever it is. And it always said she listens with at least feigned interest. <laughs> she acts like she's interested in my stories. And it's been the same with me. I mean, she'll go out with her friends and we'll talk about what she and her friends talked about and try to relive kind of what, what her day was all about. So again, I think that's really an important part about being in a relationship for a long period of time. You know, you have to keep it kind of interesting. You have to keep it kind of fresh. But you know, when we travel, we travel just the two of us, probably more so than in groups, because I think we we like the fact that we have our own unique style, and so we like to do that when we when we travel. We like to eat, and we like to take long walks, and we like to you know do things that maybe other people when we travel with may not be as involved in or excited about. So when we do travel, we travel pretty much as a team. So we're probably together maybe morning, noon and night more when we travel than when we're at home for sure. When we travel, then we're kind of, then I think we probably are mutually dependent. We went and stayed in, in Paris last year for a couple months. And uh, because Debbie speaks excellent French, I mean, she's so comfortable in France and and so maybe I'm a little more dependent in, that, in environments like that because she's such a, you know, she's very good at walking into a store and explaining what we want and things like that. So when we travel, I think we're more of a team maybe than we are in day in day out life when we're back home. It's interesting. Yeah. What do you guys have in common? Or was it an opposites attract situation? Did you guys have a lot in common That's in high school? To say, yeah. Because now you don't read the book she reads. She doesn't sell boats. She doesn't golf. But you right. can tell yeah. each other about it. But what do you have in common? Yeah. Because Or do you have to have a ton in common to make a relationship work? Or to have a relationship work, I should say? Well, you know, I think we see eye to eye, certainly, when it comes to raising a family. We saw eye to eye. I think we saw eye to eye on, you know, we have evolved to be very compatible politically when we talk about politics and things of that sort. There's certainly, um, you know, we, there's a merger there as far as what we think is right and wrong and about, you know, things like that. So I think we were very compatible in those respects. Um, we'd, we'd love to take long hikes and walks together. Um, that's something we, we enjoy doing together. I think, you know, going to movies, um, going out to dinner, those are all things we really love to do. When it comes to recreation, I'm more the recreationalist, the two of us, and she's more the one who would be, stay home and putter in the garden and things like that. And I, I, I'm probably more the guy who's going to say, okay, I'll come back. I'll be back in four or five hours and I'll help you with that or something like that. But, you know, she finds her own her own ways of entertaining herself and, and uh, it doesn't, it's not, certainly not dependent on me. She's fine without me. And, uh, and during the day, I'm totally fine without her too. So now you're a dentist. You're a husband. You have to make her happy. Right. She's working for you, with you. Half the time. Half the time. Right. But you're a dentist. You've put in all this work, and now you own your own dentistry, your own practice. Mm -hmm. You're a husband, 
and now you're a father. Mm -hmm. So are you a good father at this time? Are you 100% with your kids? Or is it a mom's deal at the beginning because you're building this practice? Is there separation anxiety when you're not with the kids? Is it causing stress on the relationship because you got to put all of your, hmm. your time into the practice over here? Or did your relationship with your kids get stronger as you got more successful and able to spend more time with them? Yeah. Um, or was the early years a little bit tougher as far yeah. as being a dad goes? Probably some of that i'm sure there was probably some of some of that um I, you know i think you know fortunately i think i have a great relationship with my kids i think um we become we are and always have been really good friends we do a lot of stuff together i think one thing dentistry did afford me is it afforded me some time you know i i was able to take long trips with my kids you know we went to you know, go to europe go to australia we did lots of things together with my kids so I think I was able to to balance those fairly well, Chad. But I'm sure we I'm sure there was times when I felt like I wasn't around as much as I should be, and I'm sure there was times when when Debbie and I were both working, we thought that we probably were, you know, missing things in our kids kids growing up. I think that's maybe natural. I don't think anybody any, nobody gets it right or nobody gets it perfect. Put it that way. You strike the, you try to strike the best balance you think you can at the time, and I I don't know I. I think if, as I look at my relationship with my kids now, I think I probably did a pretty good job of staying friends with my kids. And and another thing on that point too, I, I, I emphasize that I'm friends with my kids, but I'm not best friends with my kids. They're still my kids, right? So um, do I go drink beer with my kids? Uh, yeah, but I'm still their dad, right? And I still, I think I've always kept that relationship, um, father-daughter, father-son, and not best buddy. And I, I think for me that's worked, right? I think I I like being a father. I like being the guy that they call when they have need advice. Um, I don't necessarily have to be their best buddy in the world. And I think I've always maintained that relationship. I had a great relationship with my kids. I still think I still do. But I think sometimes people try to become too close or too too much friends with their kids. I think, I think kids still need parents, no matter how old they are. My, my oldest daughter's 40 this year. And she calls me for advice and she calls me for, um, well, she's a dentist, right? No, my oldest oh, daughter is not. Your oldest my, oldest, my middle daughter is the your dentist. My oldest daughter lives up in Portland, runs her own business, highly successful, very competent person in so many different ways. But, you know, she, but again, she calls me for advice and she calls me to, you know, kind of lean on me for, um, for information and stuff. And I like that role. And I, I think I'm friends with her. I think I'm, we have a lot of fun together. I have a heck of a lot of fun together. But uh, I, I like being a dad more than I want. I want to be their dad more than I want to be their friend. How hard was it when they brought that potential fiance or husband home? Yeah. As far as a dad goes, That's was it? Were you? Did you make that 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 transition easily to where? Hey, my daughter's she's flying the coop. Mm -hmm. or, you know, she mm -hmm. and I'm talking because I have a daughter and I know that I'm gonna face this someday. Right. But did, was it tough for you, or was it? Were, you weren't best friends, but you were close with them. Right. Right. And now all of a sudden, this other man's in their life, yeah. and, and they're gone. Yeah. Um, was it tough for you? One more than the other, I would say. I have two daughters, so one one of my sons-in-law um, entered the family, kind of, you know, from the get-go. He's like a kid that grew up in the on the in the group, right? So I'd known him for a long time. So it kind of evolved that we knew that, that was going to be the one, right? And so we, that was that was that's my dentist daughter. That's my younger daughter. And uh, they got married actually before my older daughter did. When my oldest daughter um, wanted to get married, it was a, a man who I didn't really know as well. He wasn't from this area. I didn't know an awful lot about his background. 
and I just personally didn't know him as well. And um, so when he came to, when he came to ask me if uh, he could marry my daughter, I think I was more challenging to him than I certainly was for my other son-in-law when he came to ask me to be um, to be my husband, my daughter's husband. So and our relationships are are different, but still in both respects, fortunately, extremely good. I'm I'm good friends with both my sons-in-law, but it, they came about in different ways. And I think you're right. You do have. You have, you know, you have it as a dad and you, a dad of a daughter, you know, you have a special feeling of you need to be there for them or you need to protect them in some respects. And so filtering the information of a new man coming into their life is, is a challenge for sure. So as you start to develop this, this found, now you're really developing the legacy of Mike Stoker, in my opinion, you got a lot of cool things going on in your life and you're still young. I mean, you're, you're, how old are you by the time you have your three kids? Are you 30? Mid thirties, mid thirties, you have three kids, a successful dentistry, a great marriage. And now how, how much of, of your mindset is on the success now, by the time, is it, do you, concentrate hundred percent on making this an unbelievable business an unbelievable revenue stream. Are you, are you focused on that so much that it, it's becoming more of a business than your love for dentistry? Or was it always that, that, that passion and love of dentistry carried the business? You know, I think that's a good, real good question. Cause I think that is kind of a turning point when a lot of people do become kind of, you know, maybe not trapped is not a good word, but you know, overly burdened in the professional part of their life and not letting the family part of their life um, be as important to them as it could, it should be. So I think I was always pretty lucky um, <clears throat> that I had, uh, I had the foresight to create, a, to create a life outside of dentistry. I decided that in pretty early on that I was going to do the things I wanted to do. And if, it, if the practice suffered to some extent because of that, then I would say, then so be it. So like my kids and I, Debbie would take off and would take a six, you know, six week or two month vacation in the summer sometimes. And obviously your practice suffers when you do things like that. I think I was always willing to make that sacrifice. I, I always thought at the end of the day, there's going to be enough financial reward. I didn't have to worry about every single dollar that was coming through the door. I had enough confidence in the practice. I guess I had enough confidence in myself that I could take time off. So one thing I did, and I'm not sure if I ever told you this, Chad, is that when I was about 45, <clears throat> I was a runner and, you know, I'm not very recreational and not serious at all. But I always go for a run at the end of the day, you know, three or four miles. And so after about 45 or 46, I said, hmm, I was running. I was thinking about a plan that I just want to take some time off to kind of reset my life, my career, things like that. So I said, well, I'm 50 years old, I'm gonna take a year off and we'll go travel around the world. And that's right in the middle of my practice. My practice is booming, I'm busier than hell, I'm working, you know, five days a week, you know, eight hours and working hard. But I think I, I need to push a reset. I was kind of feeling like I needed to kind of reset the table. So I came home into that run and I told Deb, look, in four years, we're gonna take a year off. and." Um, and I'll get a partner and the partner will run the practice, keep the practice alive. And the kids or girls will be in college by then. But if they want to come with us, they can. Mike will be a eighth grader. I can teach him anything he needs to know in the eighth grade. We'll just leave for a year. And she goes, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. And, but not taking me seriously. So about a year later, go for a run and come back. Okay, we're three years away. Three years we're going to take off. We're going to take off for a year. And now she's starting to think, hmm, he might be serious. 
next year I come back after we run. I said, two years away, we're gonna start saving money now for the for leaving. We're gonna start, you know, we're gonna start putting things in, you know, uh, away so we can have a, a set of, you know, resources to travel with for a year. Now she knows I'm serious, right? So, so when I was 50, um, uh, I had a partner by that time. I gave him the reins of the practice. I, kind of started shrinking out my practice. I didn't take new patients for like the last year before I left, just so the practice would be a little bit smaller. And um, so he could handle it. And uh, my daughters were in college. And I said, look, you guys wanna travel this for a year if you'd like, otherwise, you know, stay in college and, and you can come visit us. And, um, and they decided to stay in college. So my son and I and Debbie um, took off for a year. So the first part of the year, I sailed a boat across the Atlantic. I sailed a boat from East Coast uh, to the Mediterranean, and then Devin Mike came and joined us in the Mediterranean. Sailed around the Mediterranean for three or four months, and then, gosh, we ended up going to Africa. Went to Australia, went to New Zealand, um, went back to Europe, and uh, just spent a year just basically just traveling and doing all the things that I always wanted to do, but I always wanted to just have time to do it with no restraints, right? No, no constraints. And uh, it was it turned out to be just one of the best things I think I ever, ever did. I, I kind of came back to the practice with a fresh outlook. I kind of reduced my commitment to the practice. I got really close with my son, Mike, who, you know, we were always very close. We'd, I was a little league coach and everything else, but we just got to spend a whole year together. And um, it, was, it was just a, a really great, uh, a great interruption in, in, in my professional career where I kind of came back and kind of redid everything the way I wanted to do it. So I set my schedule the way I wanted it, um, set my working time the way I wanted it, kind of set the client base the way I wanted it. And it was just kind of like hitting the reset button in the middle of my, my professional career. And I ended up practicing for, you know, 12 years after that. But it was a, it was a good interruption. I felt like it was just kind of a time to take a breather and kind of reassess. Were you financially set at 50 to where you didn't have to come back and work because of the I moves I you made? Yeah, that's a good question. I thought I was. I probably wasn't, but I thought I, I probably could have made it work. Wow, that's that's yeah. impressive. You'd only been a dentist for 25 years. Right, right. That's not, it's not, at 50 years old through dentistry, you've got to be making some alternative moves to to put yourself in that position to even travel for a year yeah. and 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 you're not putting your practice at risk, but how much are you thinking about it when you're in Africa and when you're on the Mediterranean? I mean, you have wine and cheese and the best <laughs> sea in the world, right. but is your mind back in Reno? Like, I wonder not if they all. got it. No, it was done. No. You were, you were just totally I letting go for a minute. I knew that I could come back and restart a practice from scratch if I had to, if I had to. I knew that wasn't going to be necessary, but I did. I thought that at that point in time, if, if I had to go back, I was young enough, um, still right in the top of my professional career, uh, I could come back and start a practice if I had to. I just thought it was a good time to to kind of step away. And it was interesting, you know, you you kind of reassess. It's always nice. I think that's the best part about traveling. Best part about being away is you kind of reassess what you're doing. And when you're in the midst of it all, when you're kind of in the heat of the battle, I don't think you kind of really, it's hard to see the forest or the trees. And I think sometimes it's nice just to step back and kind of look. And I think what I did is I looked back at how lucky I was. I looked back at what a, you know, what a great thing I had and what a, great community I lived in. And, you know, here I, I was looking at the rest of the world and, and evaluating it on its, own, on its own terms. But I think I was kind of appreciating more what I had at that point. And I think that's one of the important things about traveling and, and stepping out of your own little comfort zone is to kind of, gives you the ability to kind of reassess what you're doing and, and evaluate 
where you're at and kind of critically evaluate where you're at and, and make the changes you might want to make at that point in time. And the only real change I made is I just kind of stepped back. I wasn't, I didn't go back and work as hard. I worked fewer days. I, I took a little more time free and, and, um, and, but I was able to still be totally committed to my practice. Even when I, you know, even at a lesser time commitment, I still think emotionally, I still was commitment, committed to my practice as I, as I was before. Were the, those four years that you were going on these runs and coming back from your, and telling your, and telling Debbie that you were going to take a year off, two years out, start saving up. I'm serious. She's right. taking you serious. Were you developing a distaste for dentistry at that time that you had to get away from it? It wasn't that. I felt I feel like you kind of alluded to before. You start feeling like this thing is controlling you and you're not But you still it. enjoyed the actual practice Absolutely. of dentistry at that time. Absolutely. It was a nice part of that, about working on kids. It's tough not to like that. It was the practice of dentistry is hard. Sometimes the running of the dental office was consuming, and and you know I also felt like you know like I had this ability to do this. The last but not least, I had, you know, I was still young enough to still enjoy a, a long trip like that, a long time commitment like that, and I didn't want to wait until you know I was quote retired because uh, you can't make there's no guarantees that at that point in time you're number one going to be physically able to do those things or if you're going to even want to do those things. So I thought it was a good, good opportunity. And I thought that um, it was a challenge too. You know, it was kind of a challenge to, first of all, prepare for an adventure like that, number one. And number two, to recover from it and come back and reset the pieces. Because it was almost like starting, in some respects, was really not exactly like starting all over again. But it was, it, was a, it was a restart. Were you missing it by the time that year ended? Yeah, that's a real good point. I kind of was. I was kind of missing. I was anxious to... I was anxious to get back. I was very willing to get back and get started. For what? To accomplish more? To build no, more wealth? Just or? to get a, just to get back into a life, which I knew was my life. One thing when you're traveling and you're living in someone else's country or doing whatever, you're a guest there, right? It's not you. It's kind of you're you're a guest in their country. And I I always think that when I'm traveling, it's not that's not my life. That's just I'm observing their life. So I want to get back to my life. I want to get back to what I was doing. I want to get back to doing the things that I love doing. And I wanted, but I wanted to do it on, you know, still make, kind of reset the table so it was more on my own terms. I think, you know, you kind of become a victim of your own success to some extent, to some extent, right? So I think I was probably working harder and I felt like there's, you know, the wheels were spinning and I felt like, uh, you know, just kind of, resetting the table was, was going to be a good thing at that point. You and I have, you know, every time we see each other in the gym, you're always like, where have you been now? Yeah, and right, and, right. and I, I feel blessed to have that in my life because the road is lonely mm -hmm. and I don't care what anybody says. I've heard a lot of people that travel the road a lot that mm -hmm. it's lonely. It's right. when you're away from your roots, when you're away from your family, it's easy to say, yeah, you know, they're going to be there when I get back. But the road is lonely, right? but the road is also very healthy for me. It's sure. very beneficial for me. It's very lucrative for me. But the anticipation of getting back is, is I love that like part of life. Yeah. And I, right. I, I kind of see the similarities in your story of like, you took a year off to where my whole year is, I'm in Reno for four days and then I'm in right. Argentina. I'm here and then I'm in Canada. I'm here, right. I'm in Texas. So I'm always coming back. Now that could, if you didn't do it right and I didn't have the right situation, that could be detrimental on being a father, being a right. husband, whatever it is. Right. It, I was I was a poor husband. And I'm thankful that I have that relationship with my ex-wife that we are strong bond, mm -hmm. strong friends, respect each other. I love her life with her new man. He cares for my daughter. 
it gives me the ability to keep traveling, but I never wanted it to be to where it, I, everybody thought like, oh, Chad's out on the road doing this. I was out there because that's how I make my livelihood. Right. right. The most important part was when you do come back, what you were going to do, what I'm going to do when I get back. And that's right. where I, I'm so driven to be a good mentor to Alyssa and a good father. And I think that's what you were doing is you were resetting to where you're going to come back and be a better father, a better relationship with your son. You probably got to know Debbie on another level right. again because right. again, those four years leading up to that, you're nonstop work. And then you probably become a better partner, a better, you know, a dentist. Yeah. You got a clear mind again. Yeah. And that's really, that's really bald. I don't want to say ball. I, it's really gutsy to do that though, Mike, right, right. like you're leaving a lucrative business and you're thousand. It's not like you're in South Reno, just checking in on the dentistry. Right. You're in, you're, right. you're in the Mediterranean on a sailboat. Right. So that takes a lot of guts to walk away from a developed business. That's your baby. That's one of your kids. Yeah. A business is your kid. Right. And now all of a sudden you're just e evacuating it with the confidence that, Hey, I'm gonna go clear my mind. Yeah. And if it's not there and I get back, if they run it into the ground, I'm going to build another one. But it, more than that, you got all those patients that have been leaning on you for years. It might be different in, 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 in children's dentistry because maybe those kids aren't developing a friendship with you like a, a clientele right. in their 20s, 30s, right. 40s right. would have. It's just a lot of guts to take that move and trust the process that, hey, I made up my mind four years ago. That's 1,500 days or however many days right. that is Why? that you stayed committed to this plan. Right. Right. It took that too. I think it kind of took that number one. Probably took that to convince Debbie that it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, take your take your son out of school and homeschool yeah. him for a year and and things like that. But you know, I, I, it was I think because we did spend time planning the process. I think that's one reason why it was probably successful. It worked out. Um, the practice survived fine. My partner was you know had been a partner for several years before that, and he continued to be my partner for the next fifteen years. So we, you know, we had a good relationship. So the table was set right. I think it was, it was um, a lot of things came together that made it, that made it work. But it is, it is funny. I, people ask me now, they say, God, I heard you're, you're the one who took a year off, right? And I said, yeah, and a year was nice, but I don't think people don't need to necessarily take a year off. I think after I was gone for a couple of months, I think I felt like I'd accomplished what I wanted to accomplish as far as just clearing my head and kind of, kind of, you know, decompressing a little bit. I, uh, the year wasn't a magic number. There wasn't anything magical about being gone a year. It's just a number I picked out on top of my head, uh, kind of fit into the school year and things like that. But um, so people ask me, you know, when did you do it? And I said, you know, you don't have to take a year, but it's nice to take some time and take an extended period of time. Make it almost so that it's a little bit painful in some ways that, you know, to the people around you or the people you're relying on you and things like that so that, so you kind of get out of a comfort zone and you have to, you have to make, you know, some strong commitments when you come back to, to do things that you want to do in, you know, maybe more meaningful, maybe somewhat different way than you're doing before. And I think it, it does take some time. And I don't think there's a magic number though. I know it's not certainly nothing magical about a year, but I think, you know, leaving something for a few weeks or a month or six weeks and kind of doing something totally different for a while forces you to reflect and it makes you think about, you know, what's important to you. So the American dream continues with this year. You take off, you come back with a clear mind, you hit the reset button. Yeah. Your practice has survived without you. That gives you the confidence of, Hey, now I'm going to go in and say, I'm going to say, I, I'm the founder of this business. I've put in my time. Now it's time to let go of the reins a little bit. I'm going to set my schedule a little bit different. I'm going to see a different amount of patients per week. Right. 
So now the American dream starts to shift a little bit into, hey, I still have this and I love this. Right. But now I get to go on these runs. I get to go golfing. I got my sailboat. When does a sailboat land in, in Tahoe? Is it in Berkeley at this time? Or or, uh, or, or when did, are you sailing all that, through your dental career? Oh, yeah. That sailboat is still uh, in the Mediterranean. <laughs> you know, and for the next 15 years, it stayed mostly in the Mediterranean. We brought it back to um, the Caribbean for a period of time, but we had that boat. So still, you're going from the, you're going to the Mediterranean boat. every year as, as a 50 oh, year old dentist. Absolutely. So this American dream is not only, is not only let you take a year off now in your fifties, you're living life now. Like this is yeah. like you, you found yourself to yeah. where like, I, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that you're not working anymore. You're right. working, but you've already put this time in that's giving you the ability to go right. do this. Right. You can't have this without this. Now this balance, right. you, did you really find that balance in that year you took right. off? Right. I, I, I think that's probably fair to say. I'm not sure if it's that redefining, but I think, you know, I don't think I was that out, out of balance before, but on the other hand, I think that for the things we talked about, there was some, you know, some adjusting that needed to be made, but, um, yeah, we kept that particular boat um, and still have it actually to this day. Um, haven't used it re recently for very, very much, but gosh, for the next 15 years, we kept it most of the time in the Mediterranean. And um, we sailed, you know, had some phenomenal trips, usually about one month of the year, we'd take off and we'd go to the boat and uh, had a great partner on the boat, still one of my best friends. And um, we'd sail together in, in the Med. And, sometimes bring on another guy who was an excellent sailor. If we had to go distances, we'd bring him, bring him with us. He's a very confident sailor. And, uh, yeah, that became kind of our, our uh, vacation platform for the next 15 years. You're like years. the Jimmy Buffett of dentists. <laughs> <laughs> you, I could just see you out there with your shorts, your oh, shirt unbuttoned, yeah, listen yeah, to a little Margaritaville. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How much of a role does relaxation play with you? Um, the, I want to get into a different part of life now of, you you have a very um healthy lifestyle as far as fitness goes here you are 68 right right you work out like a madman you jump rope like a madman you can do things that um i'm not saying that other 68 year olds can but there's usually a little bit more of a slowdown at that age to right. where they're not doing the things you're doing do you attribute a lot of your success financially professionally relationship wise with Debbie, your kids, your mentorships, your partnerships, your travel schedule. Do you attribute to that uh, of the psyche you have of the way fitness and a healthy lifestyle makes you feel as a man? It's a good point. I, I mean, I think it's a big part of it is integral. I don't, I don't think I ever really had to consciously introduce that to my life. I guess it was always just a part of it. You know, as a, when I was in dental school, I'd go run, I'd go play basketball with my buddies. I'd go run. Um, I think I did it a lot of times, just kind of the, the, the escape. I mean, to take off and go on a three or four mile run, you start thinking of stuff, right? So it's kind of reflective. It's kind of meditative. So I think I've always used exercise a little bit as that, just to kind of find a way of, of, of venting and kind of getting out. Like you say, you go to the gym and it's a feel-good situation with a bunch of cool guys. You give each other high fives when you do something. All that stuff is, I mean, people ask me now, do you, oh, you work with a bunch of, out with a bunch of guys? I said, yeah. I wouldn't do it any other way. I mean, I, there's no way in the world I wouldn't want to go out there and work work out by myself. But, but I think sometimes you do. You get in these patterns where you're getting something else out of it besides fitness. Fitness is, ends up becoming kind of a, a benefit, a, a useful byproduct. But you're doing it for other reasons. And you decide to go run, like I said, just kind of a, a decompression at the end of the day. Um, so I think it's hard to say that it was ever a conscious effort to in incorporate a healthy lifestyle that made these other things successful. I think it just kind of went along with it. 
and maybe it's obviously I think it's been a, a big part of being you know happy and and healthy and being able to do the things you still want to do. Fitness is integral to that. I I never take it for granted, but I can't seem doing it any other way. Right? It's not. It doesn't take an effort for me to to go do something physically because it just is what I want to do. It's, it's, it's natural. Does it blow your mind being in the health field and in the education you have? Does it blow your mind to think that people people see it the other way that you, that you see the way they treat their bodies? We, I talked a little bit about this with Matt and Aaron yesterday is I don't want to come across as somebody that looks down on it, but being a doctor, being a dentist, being a guy that's educated, you look at it and you're like, it's almost like you don't brush your teeth. Really? You don't work out. It's like you're cheating yourself. You know, you, you have such potential human, human being has such potential and to, to take any of that potential away just seems like you're cheating yourself, you know, whether it's mentally challenging yourself or physically challenging yourself. It's like, that's, that's what we're here to do. I mean, you know, that's doing the, everything you can do with what's the cards you're dealt. I mean, I think I'm, certainly I'm blessed to be, you know, to be healthy and, and everything like that, but it, I don't take it for granted. You know, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's something I'm, I'm always, I'm conscious of. I'm conscious of the fact that I, you know, do, I am, you know, I, I feel physically fit. I feel, you know, mentally fit. I feel like I can do the things that uh, I want to do, but it gives, it gives me the, it kind of gives me the past. It kind of gives me the ability to do the things that I want to do is because I am, you know, I'm, I'm in fairly good condition. I can do the things that I, I enjoy doing. I also think the correlation of the mindset, and, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, is I don't see a lot of people that achieve what you achieve that don't have that that wiring system mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. I'm going to invest in myself, whether it was business wise or invest in my in my in my physical being. You're 68 years old. You're traveling the world. You have no no. Um, thinking right now of slowing down or, you know, you're not going to quit sailing. You're not going to do this. If you're not in shape, it seems like that kind of stuff is harder to attain. Even a successful business. I think that that mindset parlays into all of your different aspects of life to where you want to challenge yourself to be the best husband, to be the best mate, to be the best communicator, the best father, the best partner. And now you look at it and I'm sitting here going, you've been literally sailing a boat for maybe longer, but maybe you were doing that over the Mediterranean before you turned 50. I'm just going back. I'm just going back, you know, Mm, through your fifties, you're taking a month off of work a year to go and do this. I think that the mindset that you have, that you're always challenging yourself, that might've been a challenge. Say, I'm going to take a year off and see, because you know, like you get in a yoga pose or you try to practice systematic breathing Mm -hmm. or you do gut smashers on a ball. That's Mm -hmm. a challenge in itself Mm -hmm. to stay Mm -hmm. in that, to stay in that position and get your mind ready for it. So to be able to say, I'm going to go leave this thing for a year. That's a, that's a mental strength. You got to have mental strength to do that. It, it sounds like, oh yeah, he's just going to go, you know, mess around for a year, but you're the responsibilities that you're leaving behind. That's got to, that's mental aptitude. So that comes with that wiring system that gets you up in the morning, that puts you right. on runs, that let your relaxation is being active. Right. And now you're in your, in your 68 years old, you're almost 70 years old and you're not, you're going to a personal trainer. 
And people see my videos, right? And right. they're like, I, I swear I get this all the time. Like I, you see me with my phone. I'm trying to document right. what I do and trying right. to help brands and all this stuff. They're like, you're in there with guys that are way older than you. And I'm like, dude, these guys will smoke <laughs> you in there. Go in there and try to keep up with, with Mike or Les. Go get your jump rope and tell me that your hamstrings and your calves don't feel like they're on fire <laughs> if you try to keep up with Mike's jump rope routine. Right, right. Then you got Scott, who's, I don't know, Scott's probably 10 years younger than you, yeah. it, it, maybe more, 13, 13 years younger. Yeah. He's on it. Right. So how important are those two days a week to keep your psyche clean yeah. for all the rest of it? Absolutely. I mean, this is kind of, it's kind of the engine that drives it all, right? I mean, you get in there and, and you, you hit it hard and you do the things that, you know, you, you'd never do on your own. I try to sometimes, and that's just, a, it's so laughable. Never, you know, you never laugh, even come yeah. close. You don't even, you don't even approximate within 10% of what we do in the gym. So that's kind of the engine that drives it all. I, Debbie and my wife goes with a personal trainer too, not the same one. I think she likes to keep her separation again. But, you know, it's the same thing. I don't, I don't think there's time or money that we invest more wisely than doing that. I don't think that there's nothing else we do in our life that has any more, the, the, we reap more benefits from that than we do almost anything else we do in life, I think. It's, it's, it's become integral to what we do. And I can't imagine ever not doing it. I mean, look at Les. He's 10 years older than I am. Look at what he can do. I mean, for God's sake, I always think, geez, I hope like heck when I'm 78, I'm doing the things that he's doing. I mean, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. So, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of my goal. I, I see these guys. I started doing some backcountry skiing with a guy this year who's 78. And I, I, did, I had no idea he was 78. We're climbing a hill together and he's going a little slower. And I looked behind. I, I said, I said, Tom, how, how old are you now? And he goes, I'm 78. I think, geez. If I can do this stuff when I'm your age, and that to me is my motivator, is to to you know, stay as active as I am for as long as I possibly can. I want to, you know, I want to die young at an old age, right? So that's kind of my that's kind of my goal. Wait, say that again. <laughs> I want to die young at an old age. Right. That right. is awesome. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Because you want to be active and you want to live your life like you still are have a lot of life left in you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how important is Pendola though? How important is that building? Like I, I look at that place as kind of like my release now to where right. I, I really do get sad if I miss one, even though I, I I'm go, I go through hell in there. Like I put myself in positions to where right. like you push it hard. You, you see push me, hard. I push hard and, yeah. and, and you do too. And, and, but when I'm not there, I just feel like I'm missing out. Yeah, and I right. don't know if everybody has that in their psyche. Cause here's how I am. If, if I, if I don't work out at least once a week, I feel like right. life is coming to an end. Right. I'm more of a, you know, the four or five days a week kind of right. personality. I don't know how people get wired where they don't have to do anything. I don't yeah. get that. Like, I don't, and I has think, Pandola got you more suited for that? Or have you all, or were you naturally, you just were looking for it and you met Matt mm -hmm. and now he's, he gives you the ability to challenge yourself on all these different exercises. I think that there's a little bit of what you just said. I don't think I ever thought, I don't think I ever pictured myself as being this guy who went to a gym two times a week to train with these, you know, these people that I don't think that was ever the plan. It kind of evolved, but <clears throat> it's funny. I met, I was training with another trainer and when I met Matt and, uh, I can kind of see him, you know, how passionate Matt is about things. I mean, he took this stuff so, I mean, he lives and breathes this stuff. I mean, this is kind of the, you know, this is what his life is all about. So I kind of got consumed with his passion. And, you know, we, we obviously, we became friends really early on. We used to ride bikes a lot together and stuff. But I think um, his passion is infective. Yeah, it's just infectious. I mean, it becomes, you know, you, you 
become um, influenced by all the energy that he puts out. And I think that's unique to Matt. I don't think if I was working out with somebody else, I'd be as committed to the whole process if it wasn't Pandola. You know, it wouldn't, well, that's about as strong a testimony would, as you can get. Yeah, and I don't think there's anybody who would who gives himself so much to this process as Matt does. So I think all of us are beneficiary of that. I think you know we all we all benefit from the fact that Matt, you know, he lives and breathes this stuff. He always comes up with new stuff. He's always writing things on the board. You know, he's always he's always got new things that excite the heck out of him about what he's doing. You know, and I think. Some people can get so you, know, you can get kind of bored with the process. And I think that's why most people don't stick with it for as long as we have. I think we're just lucky to have him. I mean, wouldn't tell him that face, but you know, I, I would. <laughs> no, we are. Uh, we. I, I mean, I he he knows he. I, Matt's very humble, but uh, when the things that I take out of there, and and I know that you're very active in, in being ingesting it because we're always asking questions. I'm always trying to like challenge myself to try to put it in, into what I do. And that's what I like about Matt is that he always figures out what your why is. That's right. your first thing. Right. And your why now at 68 is the same as it was when you were running, when you were 50, getting ready to take a year off mm -hmm. is that you can't have everything that you have in life Stoke, in my opinion and not be driven and not be motivated and not have your and put yourself number one i know debbie's important mm -hmm. i know your daughters and your mm -hmm. son is important but if you're not around the leadership and the foundation right. has gone from the the practice it's right. gone from the family you're right. a grandpa now you got grand, you got a lot of responsibility right. so that physical part of life and that challenge because physical exercise challenge your mental Absolutely. ability the cognitive thinking these things that we're doing with right. that with right. the with the things we do in that gym i come out of there thinking that i can't be beat even though i know i even though i can sure i'm not saying i'm the best but if you have that that that's, that that approach right that all that's what's important you know you confidence in yourself to be you know the best that you can be for you know where you are at that point in your life right that's obviously it you know you but we all know that there's there's people better physically, mentally, and everything else out there than we are. But on the other hand, I mean, knowing that you're doing the best you can do for for where you're at, where you're at in this point of your life, I think that's important. It just makes you feel like you're, you know, you're getting the you're getting the most out of what you got, you know. And I think that's that's I can't imagine doing it any other way. I mean, uh, giving up on this or giving up on, you know, whatever part of your life gives gives you meaning. I, I it's still it's hard for me to see how people lose that you know that the, the kind of losing faith in themselves to to be that person right that's that's, that's unfortunate so well, hopefully i'll keep on charging along I'm there sure. are different things in life that you see people have to give up if they abuse something if they don't have right. the willpower to stay disciplined on something like you like to drink wine yeah you own a, a liquor eggnog you <laughs> own a liquor whiskey right. so alcohol plays a role in your life as far as one you're passionate about it two it fits into what you do in travel alcohol is not the enemy as long as you do it in moderation right. or whatever right. but does do you ever sit back and go i'm 68 years old i don't want to I, I can't drink ever again does that ever did it ever cross no. your mind is it ever played a health risk in your life no, I, I don't think it's <laughs> enjoying a glass of wine at the end of the day or a cocktail once a week or whatever I end up doing is, is not, um, I don't think that's going to uh, challenge me, but I think we're, you know, we're, we're fortunate. Obviously, some people get into trouble. So I think we're fortunate that we have the, the ability to moderate. I think that's, um, that's maybe something that's either in your constitution or maybe it's in your genes. I don't know. Um, I, I've always thought that everything you do, you try to do in moderation. You try to do 
in ways that um, are not excessive. And and I think uh, enjoying a glass of wine at the end of the day, I, I consider that part of life, right? I, I look at the Italians and I look at the way the French enjoy a, uh, you know, a glass of wine at the end of the end of the day or with a meal. And I think, you know, that's just, that's just part of life. And it's part of life that I, you know, I'm certainly not willing to give up. So, uh, but all things in moderation. And we've talked about that before. You know, you have to be able to, to uh, distinguish the, you know, the, uh, the special times from the, the other times. And, you know, having a glass of wine or whatever, it's a special time. It's not, you know, it's just not your, it's not the regime. It's, it's just part of what you do to you know, unwind or, or enjoy a meal at the end of the day. And, uh, I think as long as you keep that separate from the things that you're doing to, you know, to build yourself the rest of the day, I think that's, that's a, that's not a, that's not an unhealthy way to go. Do you, how, how does a, a dentist become a, a liquid, <laughs> I mean, a, a liquor, uh, a liquor uh, uh, alcohol contained, uh, <laughs> eggnog. T yeah. Talk to me how the eggnog I, comes I, in. I blame that on the family I married into. Right. So, um, we're all enjoying eggnog on the, in, on the holidays. Uh, it's a family recipe of my wife's. And of course, someone always has the idea, God, this is so good, we should, we should sell this stuff, right? So, so that's kind of how Frankovich Holiday Nog was born out of the kitchen of my, my, uh, my, wife's, <clears throat> my wife's mom's house. And so we started um, distributing on a very small scale, a little bit of eggnog in the winter became a bigger business. And, you know, after about 15, 20 years, we're, we're selling, you know, 12, 14,000 bottles of, of eggnog every year and, um, doing it with my brother-in-law and the rest of the family, bringing different parts of, you know, friends and family in to help us bottle and just a fun, a fun enterprise. And then, you know, we enjoy every once in a while, we have a Manhattan cocktail at the same house, you know, same, my father-in-law was the first cocktail he ever introduced to me is Mike, you have to try a Manhattan. So I had a little Manhattan with my, my, my father-in-law and that evolved into a once a week ritual. We'd have a little Manhattan together. So same thing. Somebody says, this is so good. We should, you know, we should, um, we should uh, start bottling this. So we started developing this Manhattan cocktail. So recently we've, we've, what is a Manhattan? So a Manhattan is two parts of bourbon to one part of sweet vermouth, a little bit of bitters, a little bit of, of cherry, um, cherry juice in it. And uh, we blend it in this little plant we have here in Reno and um, came up with our own little concoction. And so we, we distributed it locally. And uh, it's, it was, it's small business in the sense that um, it's just um, a small family owned little thing that we kind of do. And uh, it kept it, various parts of the family started working with and we became you know, really even closer in some respect being in this little business together. Um, over time, you know, it became you know, maybe more of a, more of a, 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 more work than fun. And so uh, most recently we finally sold the business, uh, to a, to a company out of California. And so we're still going to be on as kind of their advisors and consultants, and, uh, we'll still be making the eggnog with them for the next few years. But we decided it was kind of time to go back to doing it in the kitchen again and, and not making a business take out of it. Take a year off. Yeah, <laughs> take a year off, right? That's, that's the name of your book. That's, that's one we may not be going back take to. Take the year off. You know, it, was, it was always out of our element. I think we always enjoyed doing it, it was kind of fun, but fortunately we both had our own businesses to rely on it, and this is my brother-in-law and I, and we never had to make a living out of this. So it's not an easy business to get into. It has its own unique challenges, but at the scale that we did, it was fun. We enjoyed it. So the American dream at 68 years old now, you just, you, you're not only 
on a sailboat, but now you own your own liquor and that you just <laughs> sold it. I get that part of it, but all of it, all of it is, it has fallen in place. Stoke, like from being the high school partier, but still staying grounded mm -hmm. and in class, you could have very easily just dropped out and went and got right. stoned every day right. and been a hippie. Right. Right. College, med school, residency, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. You're falling in love with dentistry. You're fall, you've already fallen in love with Debbie. You guys move back to Reno. You know that you're going to open up your own practice. You have kids. You are putting away certain amount, a certain amount of money by paying yourself first every month, taking care of your partners, your employees, making sure that you're surrounding yourself with the right people, which is an important business mm -hmm. message. Mm -hmm. You are trusting of these people. You don't micromanage these people. Your business and your wealth starts to expand through making the right moves. You you tell yourself, I'm going to reset. Even though I'm successful, I'm going to reset. I'm going to take a year off. During that year, the anticipation builds. You want to get back. You actually miss it a little bit. You probably did what you needed to do mm -hmm. within 90 days, let alone 365 days. Right. And then over the next 18 years, from 50 to here, you practice for 12 years retire at 62, could have retired a lot earlier. You're on the ocean for 30 days a year on the Mediterranean Sea. You have your own liquor company. And out of all of it, out of all of it, you keep your body and your mind in shape through fitness, through nutrition, through mental aptitude, through challenging yourself, through commitment and discipline. And all of that is easy to say in a, in a one minute rundown that I just said, but you just stack 68 years of life into something to where the next 12 years, let's say we, we talk again when you're 80, I know I'm going to talk to you a lot more than that, but there's, there's nothing, there's the sky's the limit. Like who knows what is going to happen next when most people think 62 is the time to that they're going to be done with everything. Life is, life is like starting every day for you. Right. And you do it through a way to where people looking from the outside in are like, how do you stay that happy with the same woman your whole life? Yeah. How do you do develop that kind of lifestyle where you can take 30 days off? Not many people get to do that. Yeah. They don't. And, and, and it's, it's, it's not like kudos. To, I'm not saying like, man, you've figured out life. You did it. You did it because you saw something. I don't know if it was in Cincinnati or what, but that, I think that day you made that choice of, I want to go back and start my own, my own practice. I, I think that that took a lot of guts. And I think that at 50 to do what you did took even more guts because I'd have been scared out of my mind to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking like, could I do that right now? Could right. I walk away and right. throw this in the Mediterranean Sea and just get on a boat and go and not have any contact right. points or right. touch points? Right. I, I think that the uh, stories like this, they're, they're not contrived. There's something that you really have to figure out. Like, how did all of those pieces fall in place? And the harder you work, the luckier you get. You create your own luck. You've been very lucky in life. Right. You have a, you know what I'm saying? It's like it all came together for you. Yeah, and I, I think you know we do say, oh, I was lucky, I was lucky. And I, I think you know you create your own you create your own luck. And, you know, a lot of times we're, we're always driven by um, we're driven by uh, some fear, and we're driven by um, uh, sometimes our lack of confidence. So I think you you tend to you react to sometimes those fears, and I guess maybe fear of being um, financially insecure or fear of being um, and not happy in my in my relationships make you try even harder. And I think um, lack of confidence, lack of you know, lack of um, oh, that kind of total self determination gives you the impetus to try to try to make it right and i i think if 
if you go into endeavors with too much confidence or too much self-assurance, uh, then maybe you do become complacent. And um, I guess maybe I've always thought that I had to kind of push a little bit to make life what I wanted it to be. So I think you do, you react to those fears and those, and those um, um, sometimes that lack of confidence and you, you react to that knowing that you have to make accommodations for your own, you know, for, for your own inadequacies sometimes. So I think always, you're always struggling against that. And I think maybe, maybe that's part of the issue too, is that you're trying to make sure that things do go right and you, you work hard at making things right. And I guess you have to sit in your own course and set your own um, way about what you think is the right path and what is the right thing to do. But you, you come up with, you know, some ideas about how you want to live your life and what you see yourself doing it when you get to certain points in your life. And you struggle to get to that point. I, sometimes I always think that I made it look too easy because I have been lucky about a lot of things. Things have fallen in place. I think your summary of my life makes it sound like, oh my God, there's never a bump in the road. And there's always bumps in the roads, right? So I think what you do is you brace yourself to have to fight through those and, and make the best, um, get the best result you can in the situation as it arises. And we all have, you know, boy, we all have issues that come up and you always have challenges that come along the way and you, you hope that you've prepared yourself for that. And you try to do things that kind of make it so that you can cope with those issues when they come. But it's, you know, it's always a struggle. You know, I don't think life's not easy. You know, the planet is not an easy place to exist. I mean, the challenges are in front of us all the time. So I think, I think, you know, how you go about confronting those challenges, I think is what sets it, sets the table for you. And whether you, you know, you put yourself in a position where you can weather the storm or not, you know, I think those are things that you have to kind of plan for. So if I, if I made it all look easy, it was, that's not, is really is kind of a misconception because I don't think it ever really was easy. It's just that it's kind of what I thought I had to do to kind of get myself ready for the next step. And, uh, you know, my daughter took over my practice and I think sometimes I, I see her come home at the end of the day and it, you know, it's been hard and, and you had tough interactions during the day and you've had tough patients or you've had tough parents or whatever. And I sometimes say to myself, maybe I made it look so easy that she didn't think she's going to have days like this, you know, because it, it beats you up, you know, sometimes some is she days, getting, is she getting beat up? Well, sometimes, then? sometimes you just, you do get beat up. I think that's just life, you know, and sometimes I think, um, we make it look like it never did beat us up, but I think it probably, it beats, you know, it beats us all up at some point in time. And I think you just have to kind of be, um, prepared for that and expect it. And, um, and hopefully you've, you know, you've made the, you've made the adjustments along the way that you can cope with those things when they come up, cause they're always going to come up. I could walk out of this house right now and get hit by a car. Yeah. You live life to the fullest. 68 years old is approaching what they call the lifespan average. Does the fear of death creep in naturally? And I, I heard a, another man that's a little bit younger than you talking yesterday on the radio about that. And you don't have to talk about this if you don't want. I've, I've always wondered, though is life just, you just keep living and living and living. And what you just said made me spawn this question is, or spawn this question is you were always preparing for the next step. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, there might be another hurdle. Mm -hmm. Health risks go up as you get older. Right. Things can happen as far as diseases, whatever. With your mental aptitude and the things that you've achieved in life, does it cross your mind when you're as strong as you are and that you keep going? Does the, does the fear of that creep in as you start yeah. to get to this part of your life? You know, yeah, I, 
fear may not be the word. You obviously know that that's those that's the next step. You know, none of us get out of this thing alive, right? So you you obviously um, are looking at the next step. I, so you try to do the things you can do, like we've talked about before. You try to cope with that. So you're you know you try to stay mentally and physically as fit as you possibly can. A lot of things you can't control at the end of the day, right? So I see that with my friends now. We're getting to be the age where things do crop up, right? Some some avoidable, most of them not. And so you think, well, you thank your lucky stars that you had the run you've had. Hopefully it keeps on going. Uh, but I think, you, again, you uh, reasonable people are always looking at the next step, right? You're anticipating that things are going to change, things are going to evolve. We're not in a static situation, so things are always going to um, evolve. So you try to prepare yourself for that as best you can. I, I think um, <clears throat> loss of life is not as frightening to me is loss of mental acuity. And I think you hear that more and more now because people are living long enough where that becomes more and more of a challenge. So I think loss of mental acuity and cognitive ability is probably more frightening to me than, than loss of life. I mean, I think uh, being able to read a book, listen to the news, have a good conversation, those are the things that I think we're gonna find ourselves enjoying more and more and savoring more and more as time goes on. I meet with a bunch of buddies on Wednesday night, every Wednesday night. We've been doing this for almost 30 years. And um, and I, I look forward to that, and that's tonight. So we're gonna have a glass of wine, sit down and talk. And same old, came with same couple of buddies, mostly as a core group. And um, it, it's something you totally enjoy. And I think that, the fear of losing that ability just to be able to enjoy friendships, enjoy relationships. Mentally, um, I think that's probably what I would be more worried about. Losing, you know, at the end of the whole thing that doesn't I don't think that really scares me at least not at this point it's a good know. point yeah I think it's just there's other things in life that more important than than uh, not having that I mean I think the most important thing is just being able to enjoy the relationships that you've created over the years if you had to answer this and you don't but if you had to and you had to come up with one because there might not be any I don't know but any regrets is there anything that stands out in life that you're like damn it why did I do that? I wish I'd have done it this way. No, it's so funny. I don't think I really do. One thing, my Debbie and I always say to each other is this is one of those things where, are we going to regret this on our deathbed, right? So you spend an extra hundred bucks at dinner, you buy a nicer bottle of wine, or you take a trip that, you know, you're thinking, okay, well, maybe, maybe we should wait a while to do that. And you think, you know, am I going to regret that? We're we going to say on our deathbed, gosh, we shouldn't have had that nice bottle of, you know, Bordeaux wine or no, we should have had that nice meal in Paris. And, and no, I don't think experiences, there's no experience. I think I really regret. I, there's things you wish you could have done better and things like that. I think it's, I, no doubt you have thoughts like that, but no real regrets per se. I can't really think of anything that I really totally regret. I think, um, you know, yeah, I, I wish I were, more of an attentive son to my parents when they were getting older and things like that. Sure, you're, there's always things you can think of, but uh, ultimately, I don't. I don't have any. Really, I don't harbor any big regrets. No, I don't. Any, any. Um, we'll end it like this, though. Any future or direct future? Is it? Is it the Mediterranean and sailing, or is there another challenge that you're going to present for yourself? Are you going to commit to something else? Are you going to? Uh, are you going to get competitive with yourself to achieve something else? Yeah. Are there any other short-term goals that you'd see right now? Are there other businesses? Are there other travel plans? What's next on, in, you know, in, in this, this American dream journey? 
So a good question. And I think I'm still kind of pondering that. I'm kind of figuring out what is the next step. You know, I want to stay healthy and active. I want to keep on traveling. I want to do those things. I think what's more on my mind now is, is thinking of ways to give back. And I, I think that sounds kind of trite. And it kind of seems like, you know, I say everybody goes through that little period of time. But how I can most effectively um, kind of use my time and my skills to, to help some people. And uh, not on a grand scale, maybe just kind of small scale stuff and maybe very local. But um, I think that's kind of more on my mind now about thinking about I've been, you know, I've been really fortunate. I've had a good life. And, um, you know, how I can help some other people do some things they want to achieve too. I, that's, that's maybe more on my mind. I try to be a mentor to younger dentists in town. I do... I do some things with um, some younger dentists that kind of help them channel their efforts. Uh, but even on a broader scale, I think there's more, there's more to be done. And uh, I, I think I'll, I'll be spending more of my time in that, re- in that regard. It's awesome, man. I think, I think that what you and Debbie have done and, and you look at it, like you guys have done it together. Like yeah. there, there's not a lot. When my dad died, him and my mom had been together 34 years. Wow. And to look at it that you guys met in high school and dated and then got married at a young age. And now here you are approaching your seventies together and you're still in love. That's probably the coolest thing out of the entire, you know, what Matt and I deem the American dream. And it's not that you're the only one that's lived it. Everybody can have their own version of the American dream. But like I said, looking from the outside in, if somebody stand on the other side of that wall, looking in that window and they could hear this or or know what you've done. And I know we've just touched on little parts of it in, in 68 years, but I think that the journey and the in and out and the, the choices that were made, the decisions you made, the risks you took, I think that that puts you in a position to be able to, to, to say, I deserve to live the life that I live because you set that up and not everybody can do it. It sounds easy through talk mm-hmm. and words and verbiage. I get that, but I, I, I'm, I don't get jealous. I don't get envious. I look at it like as motivation and inspiration. And I think that that's one of the things that draws me to use a friend because we don't see eye to eye politically. We don't see eye to eye in different things, I'm sure. But I wanted to always, I, I really wanted to challenge myself as a person to free my mind to accept people and their beliefs and not get on a high uh, on a soapbox or a high horse and say it's my way or the highway. I really think that it's it's such a waste of time to worry, even though that there are important aspects of religion and and politics and stuff. I wanted to get to know people for who they were, because I very easily could have been grown in a family that I had that I established the same views that you did. You just never know what cloth you're going to be cut from. And I think it's fine in that common common bond that you say. He is my friend right. and an inspiration and a mentor. And I found it in Les. I find it in you. I find it in Matt. I find it in people younger than me. Right. I, I I think that the, the whole thing about, well, you, he's, you can't be friends with somebody that age or you can't date somebody that age. It's kind of a weird deal to me because I find good in a lot of different, in a lot of different age groups I and think, a lot of different people. I think you're uniquely talented in that respect too. Cause I think you do. I think you, you know, I, I appreciate your openness. I appreciate the fact that you do. You know, you can make jokes and, and things like that, which is the is the humanizing way of, of dealing with differences, right? It's a human human way of dealing with differences. So I think you're 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 uniquely talented in that respect. And that's hats off to you for that. Uh, I think that because you you could make this all about tribalism and and part partisanship and things of that sort. Because we live in that time, I and mean, we definitely live in that time. People want to categorize, and um, I think it's it's takes a big person to bridge that gap. And realize that hey, at the end of the day, we're all human beings, right? We're all in this together. We we share the same planet. So uh, at some point in time, we have to come together and kind of find ways of living together. 
Uh, so I think you uniquely are, are, are talented in that respect. And well, thank has, you. hats off to you for that. Thank I think you. That, I could do a very good job of that. And I think you, you kind of are the, in a little bit in the glue of the generational gaps in the gym and things like that, because you, you can see both sides. I mean, you can see, you can see it from your end of the, of the spectrum. You can see it from, from the other end of the spectrum. So it, it takes people like that, I think, to be able to get people together and get the best out of people. So. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't think it's fair to, like we said, it's not fair to, to not give our body everything that we do. And I appreciate you saying that. And I don't think it's fair to, to me or to anybody to cut somebody off because of right. a different view. And, and I think that it took, I don't think that I was ever like on the edge or of the end of the spectrum to where, Oh, you got to do things this yeah. way. I do right. have my views and right. I'm not afraid to say who I am, but I also don't want to depict our friendship or judge you or have you judge me based on something that it, it's like, yeah, I voted for him and you voted for her or you voted for him and I voted for her, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I can't depict the friendship with you or base my friendship or my love for you or less based on that kind of a decision. Right. I've always right. based it on how, how do they accept me? How do we get along? How do we interact? Is it natural? It's a challenge to get past that too. I mean, I'm confronted by this all the time. You know, I have friends who I've grown apart from because a lot of it is because of the current environment that we live in, right? It's difficult. Um, we do put ourselves, we pigeonhole ourselves. And I think it takes a big person to get past all that and to try to see people for what they are and, and try to see it from their perspective. You know, I mean, um, at, at the end of the day, like I said, we are all, all are in this thing at the same point, the same time, and we're all in it together. So, you know, we got to find ways of, of at least expressing our, our differences and expressing them in a, in a, a mutually beneficial way so that we can get something out of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, shit, that, I can't argue with you. Pushing. I can't argue with a guy like you for your beliefs. Look at what you've accomplished in life. I'm not going to sit here and go, man, you'd have been way better off if you saw things my way. I'd <laughs> right. be ignorant to say that. Yeah, right, right. You've done it. So obviously the proof's in the pudding. It doesn't matter what you see in different aspects. I could sit here and say, I, I believe in this religion and get the hell out of my house if you don't. I would right, never right. do that. Sure. I do get heated in some instances, but I've really tried going into my forties to really mature in a way to where I did not get that way. Mm -hmm. I did not. And, and, and I'm proud of myself for it. So I think being around individuals like you, less is way more of a hothead than you are. At right. least I don't know the hothead side of you, right. but mixing all of that into that melting pot that I call Chad building is what is how I've lived my life and how right. I continue right. to contrive it. So when I'm on the road, I might make a move that I was inspired by Mike Stoker to do. And that's what life's all about. Yeah. I'm not going to sit back and go, dude, there's this guy in the gym that doesn't see eye to eye. I mean, I wouldn't, I, it's yeah. not like that. Right. I, I, I get inspiration in so many different ways. And, right. and, and I want to give credit to the people that do that for me. And that's why I wanted to have you on here is because the life you've lived is one that somebody could look at and go, yeah, been there, done that. Yeah. But I look at it and go, man, there's so many different parts of that that I want to achieve right. and I'm 44 years old and I'm single. So that's one part of that life that I have not achieved. Right. And that's a big deal. Right. Loneliness is a bitch. Right. And, 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 and I'm open to people with people about that. So it, looking from the outside in, I think that Les has a story. Scott's got a story. Right. Me and Scott probably have nothing in common right. except that we work out in Pandola, right. but I love the dude. Right. I love saying good morning to him. I love right. high-fiving him. I right. love seeing his tenacity right. and his like, you look at him and you're it's like, amazing. it's, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Incredible. And it's, it's intriguing. And that's what I see you, in people. You need to see, and Scott's a good example to see him in person in his own environment. Right. So I went to his, um, to his induction as, as being the new, um, um, minister at his church. 
And you see a guy in his own environment with his own colleagues around him, his own peer group, his family. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't change your mind about him. It just shows you another level of depth of a person that on the, on the surface, you just see him as another guy you're working out with on Tuesday, on Monday and Thursday mornings, right? So you see this whole other dimension to the person. That's why this is kind of cool doing this with you, because you can see a whole other dimension of a person that, that on the surface you see one thing, but you know that below that, that surface layer, there's a whole life and there's a whole commitment. There's a whole, you know, world that, that he lives in that I, I otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to. So it was really pretty interesting. Les and I, by the way, are going to go to one of his services on a Sunday. We'll have to have you come. Oh, I'd love to. Do yeah, the, I'd love to. the whole Pendola group. I'd love because to. Because it would be fun. It would be really cool. Go no, I'd, I'd go in a heartbeat. Go have a beer at the pub afterwards. Yeah. That's right See, you can street. mix them both. <laughs> See, I want to do this again with you, and I want to get into an aspect of life that is is very important to me, and I've only talked to one other person on this podcast about it, and that's the evolution of friendship and how different people are going to come in and out of your life, right. and different people that's are going to leave your life. And it could be out of your control. It can be because of an argument. It because becomes uh, uh, God bless you if you hold grudges. I want to get better at not holding grudges. I've gotten better over the last 10, 12 right, years at right. not holding grudges. And I want to get into that Still because, yeah, you know, yeah. you do. And, and in life, people come in and out of your life right. and you look back and you're like, man, how did I, what, why am I not friends with him anymore? What yeah. happened? We're still buddies, but yeah. I don't have this in common with him anymore. I'm, I'm friends with you because I see you two days a week. Well, if we didn't work out, if you could stop working out, how, how strong could that foundation be to right. stay? Who knows? Right. So I want to get into that about going into your seventies. Do you look back and go, man, I owe some people a phone call. Mm -hmm. I need to go have a beer absolutely. with that guy. That's, oh, I think that's a, that's an important thing to me. So for Mike Stoker, the American dream, a good friend of mine. I love being around him. He intrigues me. He inspires me. Matt Pendola, Aaron Pendola, thank you for bringing us together. Can't wait to go to Scott's service with him and Les. Joey Gilbert will get there. This life ain't for everybody, you guys. You just heard a story, ins and outs of a story that is awesome to me, intriguing and inspiring, like I said before. And that's what I like to get, um, you know, people to understand that this life ain't for everybody. Mike's not, not, might not be yours, but to hear his story for me, it motivates me in a lot of different ways. And I hope it did, did so for you as well. So. It's been another great talk. We have some more great guests coming up tomorrow and Friday this week. We'll be releasing these podcasts twice a week, every Monday, every Friday. Again, thank you so much for the humbling response that we're getting out of this, as well as all of our other brands and endeavors. Don't forget to go join the North American Whitetail Championships at NAWTC.com, brought to you by Bone Collector. You can also visit them on Instagram at NAWTC. Clint Walker and the guys at Wicked Outfitters in Kansas are putting on a heck of event, 14 regions across. America and Canada, all archery, $300 to join for your chance to qualify and win $50,000 cash money. So I'm winging all of these commercials for these guys because Clinton, Steve, and all the guys at the NAWTC wanted me to do it in my style, my duck calling, my duck hunting, my duck conservation style, even though I'm not a deer hunter, but I believe in it. I love it. I love those guys. So I wing these commercials because I feel very passionate about it. I don't have a script. I don't want to write anything down get involved in it and understand that the preservation of our lifestyle and our heritage in the hunting world is dependent on things like this. These guys see a future in it. NAWTC.com. Tell them Chad Building and the Foul Life Banded Crew sent you. Tom Rashishin, the producer, the man, the myth, the legend. Please go ahead and hit that button and play our boy Haas, Leith Lofton. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Thank you all very much. Life on earth won't last that long 
What you gonna do when the money's all gone? Say life on earth won't last that long. What you gonna do when the money's all gone?